Welcome to the Hoopsville June podcast. I'm your host, Dave McHugh. Yes, it is the June podcast, even though most of you are probably listening to this in July. We're trying to get it out the door before the month of June officially comes to a close. That was not our plan. We actually were ready to put this out in the middle of the month. Unfortunately, the computer uh, decided to stop working. And as a result, we had to invest a little bit of money, get it back up and running. I, I'm hoping that we have a season uh, coming up in 20 and 21 because you're going to love the speed in which we can do things and, and least problems that we're going to have when we web stream in the future via video and such. But in the meantime, we're just getting this show put together and out the door before the month comes to a close. If you'd like to interact with us, you can always find us on Twitter at D3Hoopsville and using the hashtag Hoopsville. We're on Instagram under the same followings at D3Hoopsville and hashtag as well, though we tend to uh, follow some people there and certainly uh, see a lot of stuff there, but we don't tend to do much but promote the show there. Uh, whereas Twitter, we tend to break some news and, and, and converse with fans a little bit more often. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hoopsville, and you can always email us, Hoopsville at D3Sports.com. That's Hoopsville at D3Sports.com. Coming up in this podcast, um, we will have an interview with Matt Airy, head coach of Aurora Men's Basketball. He and his wife and family suffered from COVID-19. Um, we'll have his interesting almost scary story um, about him and his wife giving birth to a child as well, all in the midst of the coronavirus. It's a fascinating story. Also gives you pause a little bit about what coaches and players and others will have to deal with uh, if we were ever to get the season back underway or practices, and we don't want to make any assumptions. We'll also finally get to talk to the Jostens winners with the season kind of coming to an abrupt end. That kind of fell to the wayside by accident. And so to help me with the heavy lifting, Gordon Mann and Ryan Scott also stepped up to the plate. They, respectively, interviewed Sydney Kopp of DePaul and Kenna Gilmore of Hamilton, of course, now graduates of those two institutions, talking to them not only about the Jostens, but a little bit about you know this senior year and how things kind of ended, and a little bit from Kenna Gilmore's point of view about the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and what Kenna Gilmore was already doing on his campus to be such an incredible leader, which, as you probably suspect, led him to the Justin's Trophy. We'll also talk to Landry Kalsmalski from number one ranked Swarthmore. We'll talk to him about the season that wasn't to some extent. Uh, the Garnet were looking to make a return trip to Fort Wayne and most importantly, try and win a national championship after finishing runner up the year before. Uh, we talked to Kalsmalski about that and the outlook that the team had when everything came to a close. We also talk about his seniors who ended up being huge parts of that program, but also have held their heads high since everything came to an end. And then we'll wrap things up, talk about the future shows, and we'll hat tip to Chris Wensler, Sports Information Director at John Carroll. You might remember us talking about him in late November this past season and seeing the John Carroll jersey hanging in his honor. We'll talk about Chris and the reason we're dedicating this month's show in his honor. Uh, first, let's get to some coaching hires. If you missed them, there were a number of them. You can always find the coaching carousel on d3hoops.com, where we're keeping up the best we can with hires, both small and large. Some of the larger ones that jumped out of us, we'll start with Amherst. They decided to hire Marlon Sears. He is the he was an Columbia assistant coach. You might remember him in Division Three, having been the head coach for a number of years at Montclair State. 
he did a pretty good job at Montclair, kind of brought them back into relevancy, and they have been um, being doing well pretty much after that. Uh, Marlins returning to Division Three with the job at Amherst, one of a number of finalists we talked about on the boards. Um, there were three that were related to Amherst and three who were not technically. Uh, Aaron Toomey, of course, in the mix there as well, who had been interim head coach while Dave Hickson was on sabbatical and then retirement. Marlon Sears, one of four straight African-American hires in the athletics department at Amherst, which has certainly uh, caused some to uh, comment about that. Uh, I don't know much about some of the other hires, but I can certainly tell you two of those four looked pretty solid, including Marlon Sears. One name that jumped out that was a surprise was Mike Maker. You might remember the former Williams head coach who went on to Marist, was head coach there for four years. Unfortunately, I don't think things turned out as well as he had hoped, certainly not as well as Marist has hoped as they let him go after four years. Uh, he was in the mix for that finalist job, which certainly turned some heads. Another one that jumped out at me was Larry Anderson, head coach at MIT. Um, we will be talking with Larry Anderson in the near future, but you're going to have to find out at the end of the show as to why. So Marlon Sears, welcome to uh, Amherst. Augustana made a head coach hire as well. They stayed within, let's say, the program. They saw, they hired Benedictine Mesa AD, which is out of the NAIA, the athletics director there, and head coach Steve Schaefer. He's a former student assistant for Gray Giovanni. Schaefer will take over a program that obviously has been doing pretty well. Also in men's basketball, Whitman hired um, Josh Lanatma, and I apologize, Josh, uh, John, I apologize. I know I... Whitman men's basketball also made a hire to replace, um, well, replace one of the other big moves of the year. If it wasn't retirements, it was obviously big moves on Eric Bridgeland going to Redlands, left Whitman with an opening. John Lamina uh, was hired. I hope I said your name right, John. He was the uh, he actually has some D three ties though in Ohio at Franciscan he was in Florida at a non Division three institution now heading out to Whitman and the women's side a couple of notes Wittenberg Wittenberg hired Brian Neal I think that one flew a little bit under the radar I might remember his success at Thomas More um, he was a D one head coach especially at Xavier and Brian Neal welcome back to Division three we'll hopefully be talking to him sometime in the future. And the Illinois Tech made a huge splash. They hired you, Chicago women's head coach, Carissa Sane. Yeah, I, I said that right. You heard that right. If you hadn't read it before, Illinois Tech hired you, Chicago women's basketball coach, Carissa Sane. Now, someone said Carissa lost uh, as many games in her tenure at Chicago as Illinois Tech won. I don't know if that math actually adds up, but it is that significant a difference in the two programs. There may be some personal things going on. That's at least what was said in the press release. Maybe somewhere down the road we'll talk to Carissa about all of it. But that is a huge change in the women's basketball side of things. And last we checked, U Chicago still uh, does not have a replacement there for Sane. And again, more coaching hires and, and other decisions made besides what I just mentioned. Go to d3hoops.com for that. In our notebook segment, COVID-19 obviously making headlines. There is so much up in the air. Uh, Bowden started the dominoes a little bit rolling here with schools that have decided there will be no fall sports and in all likelihood no winter uh, sports or at least a delay to winter sports. I shouldn't say no winter sports. That's a misstatement on my part. Bowden's announced that basically there'll be no athletics until at least January 1. That means even the winter sports will have to wait till January 1 to even get up and going. 
yes, there's a lot of questions there. And no, I don't have all the answers because I think some other pieces have to, to line up before we understand what the ramifications of that could be. TCNJ has come out saying most of their fall sports will not take place, mainly the ones that have a little bit close contact. Some of them would take place. We're waiting for other schools to make decisions. Uh, RPI has made a similar decision. There's all kinds of different decisions. Some of them are just canceling fall sports. Some, like Bowdoin, are doing um, the entire first semester. I'm hearing there may be other NESCACs that will follow. We know Williams has done that in, in some cases, but Williams left the door open for basketball to possibly start as early as October 15th with practices. That's the other note in all of this. The NESCAC has opened things up to make it a little bit easier for their institutions. Remember, NESCAC doesn't allow everybody to start practice on October 15th. Well, now they will for this year. They'll also allow them to start games as early as November 13th. Normally, that for this year, that was set for November 20th. How that's all going to play out and whether even teams could take advantage of the November 13th start, I, I don't know right now. Um, a lot of pieces still being... Uh, moved around. Uh, Grinnell, another team or a school that in, uh, announced fall closures. So there's schools that have made these decisions, whether they're going to have students on campus or not. Bowdoin's case, they're going to have very limited students on campus. It's going to be freshmen and transfers and maybe a few others. MIT's announced 60% of students will be on campus. No word on how that will affect athletics as they don't know what students will be allowed back on. Um, so there's a lot going on here. Some schools are making these decisions because they don't have maybe enough beds to split everybody up into single rooms. Um, or maybe they're afraid that, that students may pass on the virus and a professor could get sick or, or unfortunately uh, die for an in, from an infection. Of course, athletics is the challenge. You know, you're meeting other teams and teams on teams. And there also might be restrictions within state. You know, one state may not be, able, be allowed to play uh, in other states uh, before coming back and having to be quarantined. There are so many different challenges for schools that decisions are going to be across the board. I have asked, how is this going to affect basketball? Uh, I've heard from a lot of coaches. There's talk about seeing if they can move maybe the start date for basketball in Division Three to January 1. I have no idea if that's feasible. I have no idea if it's possible. But as of right now, the NCAA as a whole on the Division Three level is leaving uh, championships alone. They're they're keeping them in place. They have, in the fall, actually started everybody's preseason on August 10th. That's significant because some schools have decided to start their semester early, go through Thanksgiving or until Thanksgiving, and then have the semester end at that point. Others have decided that they're going to start normal, but on Thanksgiving, they may not bring students back after that and do everything online. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts, and I cannot come close to covering it all. You have to remember also for some schools, whether they want to keep their doors open or, or, or can they keep their doors open is part of these conversations. If some school that is, that is struggling, let's say a Wells, says we can't keep our doors open if we decide we can't have students on campus this semester, they're probably going to do all they can to put students on campus. Um, and so there's a lot of moving parts for individual schools, for individual conferences, and the like. And that's one of the reasons that the championships have not been called off. Um, some people have asked me what my thoughts on that are. Right now, I think championships stay in place. But in a week's time, I might have a very different opinion. A week ago, I may have had a different opinion. Things have changed so much 
Uh, there was a point in time I didn't think we'd see any sports, and there was a point in time I thought it was premature to even make a prediction on the fall. I'm kind of still in that premature to make a decision on the fall, even though we're entering July here and decisions have to be made. But I'll keep this in mind that I've heard from several people, ADs and coaches. The decision of a student to come to a campus that is open is going to be made ultimately the day they get in the vehicle to eventually come to that campus. They may change their mind right then and there, or maybe even on the trip. So there's a lot that that could change and we'll keep an eye on it the best we can. D3sports.com is another resource. I know we don't tend to use it a lot, but we are certainly trying to keep up with things there as best we can. Another interesting uh, thing in this is Wesley College in Delaware. I was hoping by the time I was talking to you now that a decision will have been made. Now Delaware State apparently is in the mix to acquire Wesley in whatever shape and form that is. Delaware State is located all of a mile and a half from Wesley's campus. I have heard three different versions on what they may do. There's the idea that Delaware State would absorb Wesley, especially its nursing program, and dissolve athletics. That certainly is one extreme. There's another example that they would pick him up uh, and treat it almost like a, a florum FDU, or an FDU, FDU florum scenario in which those campuses are right next to each other and FDU florum is its own institution. Um, there's a chance Delaware State picks up Wesley and runs Wesley as per normal, there's also the idea that maybe they do it for a year or two and then change their minds. Who knows? Uh, there was even one cr idea that isn't that outlandish, that Delaware State decides, hey, you know what? We're done with this D1. Pick up Wesley and use Wesley to be a D3 institution all in all. I think there's a lot of options on the table there. And unfortunately, we don't have an answer. We know that uh, board of directors have, or board of trustees, I should say, have met at these institutions, I was told a decision by the time I was recording this would probably be made. I was also told by the time I heard this that maybe things went south and Wesley's in trouble. In other words, I don't have anything to give you, but keep your eye out because that Wesley decision could come at any point in time. And obviously a storied program in football, a program that was getting even better in basketball and other sports. And, and you certainly hope for the students who go to those institutions who are being held in the lurch as a result. Uh, let's jump to regional rankings. We mentioned in the last podcast, if you were listening, that this uh, the plan to go to 10 regions as of the 2021-22 academic year was going to take place, and it is going to take place. That has passed all of the steps it needed to at this point in time, barring some insane uh, wild card that I'm not aware of. We are moving forward with 10 regions come the 21-22 academic year. The one step that has come out since the podcast is that the championships committee, after talking to all the championships uh, individual sporting committees, have said that they will hold 20% of teams will be ranked in each of the regions. In the past, you had a, a variance between 15 and 21%. There was a question on whether they just go to a solid number, let's say eight, or do you go to a percentage? They'll go to a percentage. That's going to end up being between 8 and 10 at the most, I think, for each region. Because each region is going to be relatively equal to others in terms of numbers. No, I will tell you now, no, I do not know how these regions are going to break down. I have talked to several sources about how it may work, but I have nothing concrete. Um, I suspect in the next six or so months we will find out some of that information. Uh, it, it's being kind of dotted and crossed, as it were. Uh, fine-tuned, 
Um, and we will learn it eventually, obviously in time for that next academic year. But at this point in time, I don't actually know how these regions will break down. But in a sport like basketball and soccer, there'll be 10. In a sport like football, there'll now be six going up from four. In some other sports, there'll be some adjustments as well. Um, there, the other note that came out with a 20% announcement was that the Women's Basketball National Committee has asked that the deadline for automatic qualifying bids, in other words, to be submitted to the committee, be moved up two hours. Currently, it's a 6 p.m. Eastern deadline. They want it up two hours to 4 p.m. Eastern. I've been told that this is something that the Women's Basketball Committee has asked several years in a row now. This is the first time the Championship Committee considered it. They tabled it for now, which to me basically means they just want to look at it more. They may ask other committees, like the Men's Basketball Committee, about the idea as well. We'll see where this leads. I know this will impact conferences if it were to move forward. I'm just going to mention it. It certainly would impact some conferences who play their championship games on Sunday, so more may be moved back to Saturday. The idea is to give the committees a little bit more concrete work to go on, that the racks aren't guessing a bunch of variables and options on their Sunday morning call, but have more in place and less variables to consider, et cetera, et cetera. Again, though, it's been tabled, so this isn't going to happen at least any time in the near future if we hear something again follow us on twitter and facebook and all those jazz places in the podcast we'll certainly talk about it but what i caught on was at least it was brought up and that certainly is interesting sorry to jump back to the budget closures i mentioned wesley there have been some school closings um i should have mentioned it then and i'll just jump back to it now uh johnson and wales denver announced that they were closing the school in a year's time uh, and so initially, we all thought that SCAC would be losing a member in a year's time. Oh, pump the brakes. They, within 24 hours of that announcement, they said they're shutting down academic athletics, I should say, now. So it'll stay open academically for another year, but athletics is done. It kind of makes sense, to be brutally honest, because why would you jump through hoops to try and have athletics in the next year dealing with the coronavirus and the flu or whatever else you may have to deal with to get athletics successful if you're shutting it down in a year's time anyway. That's a lot of expense and a lot of headache to go through. So unfortunately for the student-athletes there, and I feel for them, and especially coaches and administrators, athletics is done at JW Denver, and that also means the SCAC is lost and a member there, just as they look like they were kind of solidifying themselves a wee bit. So I forgot that closing. I apologize. There will be more closings, and we'll try and keep up with it when we can. St. Thomas, the decision with them, um, the D1 decision keeps getting kicked down the road. If it were, if it was a can, we'd keep kicking it further and further down the road. Uh, we were expecting a decision in April and COVID-19 forced that decision to get pushed to June. Well, a framework was designed by D1 and a waiver was offered to Steve uh, to St. Thomas, but a decision on whether that framework will be adopted by D1 will now not come until the January NCA convention when the entirety of D1 will vote on it. So now St. Thomas has to wait until January to find out if it passes. And I don't know. It, it, I, I'm sure some will say this will pass easily. I could see a lot of scenarios where it doesn't get passed, but we don't need to go into that now. But then St. Thomas goes in and applies for a waiver basically on a an exploratory year because they've already started that, which would allow them, if approved, to jump into Division One 
nine months later, or really less than that, seven months if you count that everything starts in August for for uh, schools. Uh, this is a late January, middle of January decision in August. You're waiting until April for an August decision for 21-22. Here's the problem. What do you do with schedules? Coaches have got to be pulling their hair here. I've been told, and I think I've reported it several times now, that St. Thomas coaches were told you can schedule Division three opponents for the 21-22 academic year. However, you better make sure that they're aware you may pull out of that game for D1. Okay, now we've gone even further. I mean, that conversation I was having, in, what, six months ago? So now we're waiting even further. What are they doing? You can't schedule D1 because D1 teams aren't going to schedule them with the chance they're not coming to D1. And you schedule D3s, well, there's going to be a number of D3s who aren't going to want to schedule a game they may lose with only a couple months' notice, especially for the fall sports. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and I feel bad for St. Thomas. What do they do? I don't know. Um, their, their public perception and, and comments are, we're holding out. We're going to be excited to go to D1 come the 21-22 academic year. That's what we're doing. But there's obviously some challenges behind that. And yes, the conference schedule will get put in place, but they're not going to have much outside of that. It's got to be starting to stymie recruiting a little bit because the student athletes don't know where their future is going to be necessarily. Um, anybody who's coming in at this point in time doesn't know if this is going to be a D1 institution in the future and don't even know if they're going to be offered a scholarship at that point in time, nor can that conversation even take place. You don't even know what the finances of it all. You also wonder, with this downturn in, in, the, in the economy and with coronavirus, is this a smart move? Is making this kind of investment at, at St. Thomas a smart move when you don't know how many students are truly going to start coming in the doors in the future. As strong as St. Thomas is, everyone's going to see an enrollment drop. And you don't know what the costs are going to be and whether you can even slightly recoup those costs. Does an independent year for 21-22 make sense in Division Three, and wait another year for Division One? I, I don't know. Scheduling will certainly be tough. I think it won't be as tough as it is for Thomas was for Thomas Moore, um, who kind of got left out on an island, as it were, in their part of the country. I think there's teams and institutions in each sport who will play St. Thomas. So I think they can find some, some competition, but independent is a real challenge. Um, and then of course the other idea is, do you find a division three conference, the WIAC or some somewhere else makes sense. And I don't know the answer to that either, because I don't know whether things stood with even I, the idea of going to the WIAC. And I don't know if they fit in any other conference. So this whole thing's become a, bit of a mess to be honest and i feel for st thomas the coaches and student athletes there who oh great there's a framework now and st thomas can apply to that framework and get a waiver they've already been told that but d1 has to now pass it and we now have to wait till january to find out if they're going to pass it it's very interesting a couple other notes um i'm hearing there may still be some conference changes coming there's one school in new england i'm hearing about who may be changing conferences um, we have some schools that have uh, Brevard and Dean that are officially D full-time D3 members now. And, of course, we talked about Warren Wilson um, and uh, Bob Jones and Manor College coming into the Division Three pipeline. Um, where they end up, well, that's the ACAA-CAC question. Of course, I think we talked about this on the last podcast. Those two conferences have officially merged. We only broke that story back in January. Uh, some newspapers were 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 
talking about it, skirting the lines back in December, but we told you it was going to happen in January. It finally uh, went through. Um, we can talk more about that when we get close to the season and how that all will work. But the real question becomes, do these three in the pipeline for Division Three maybe jump into that CACACAA merger, which will have a new name at some point down the road, um, just to help them along before maybe they go to another conference? I don't know. Um, but conference changes are still being talked about and will still be a topic of conversation, to say the least. Uh, I think that's it. Oh, one other note. I want to congratulate Sam Atkinson. Um, remember, he was the committee chair for men's basketball the last two years, having served four on the committee. Of course, now his time on that is done, even though they put together a fantastic bracket that I wish it could have been played out, at least so Sam could have seen how it played out. But he is now the president of COSIDA, which is a College Sports Information Directors Association. He is the first full-time D3 SID to get this. Others who have, have D3 pr schools have had D1 programs, like Union has an ice hockey pro ice hockey programs that are that are in D1. This Sam is the first one where the entire athletic department is D3. And he's the first one to become president at Cosida. We congratulate him on that accomplishment. When we come back, we'll get our interviews going. Matt Airy joins us. Talk about the coronavirus scare in his family. It's an incredible story worth listening to when we talk about how that has changed his perception and perspective and maybe prepares him for the season ahead. You're listening to the Hoopsville June podcast. Yeah, it is the June podcast because it was intended to be out in the middle of June here. Uh, I am your host, Dave McHugh, coming to you from the D3 Hoops, or coming to you from the WBCA and ABC studios, thanks to D3Hoops.com. We'll be back with, Mount, uh, with Matt Airy next. got more schools than Division One, more fans than Division Two, and more upsets than March Madness. There's 800 programs with over 11,000 games leading to two national championships. And we've been covering it all for over a decade. From Eastern to Occidental, from Puget Sound to Piedmont, from Southwestern to the University of New England, and from Hope to Calvin. Nobody covers Division Three basketball like we do. We're D3Hoops.com at www.d3hoops.com. It's on us to stop sexual assault. In any way that we can. To get a friend home safe. To never blame the victim. It's on us. To stand up. To make our community safe for all. It's on us. It's on us to look out for each other at parties. It's on us. To be more than just a bystander. To step up and say something. It's on us. All of us. To, to stop, stop sexual, sexual assault. assault. Learn how and take the pledge at itsonus.org. My name is Marcus Walker. I was All-State, won a state championship, a high school All-American, and played college and pro ball. I played because I love the game. I grind to be the best. I sweat because I put in work. I'm strong because I believe. When I want to bring it before game time, I come to the house that college basketball built, the CBE. No matter your skill, take it to another level. Elevate your game right here at the College Basketball Experience at Sprint Center. 
Now joining us on the Blue Frame Technology Hoopsville Hotline, it's the head coach of Aurora, it's Matt Airy. And, and Matt, I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us just to get everybody up to speed. Shortly after the basketball season came to an end for you guys, while we were still kind of in the middle of tournament play, you went about your life as you would as a coach, getting ready for things. And it, it seems that just maybe, just maybe, most likely, you ended up suffering from, from this COVID-19 thing and then your wife. But I'm, I'm making this a really simple story, aren't I? Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the bare bones version. Um, first, Dave, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I appreciate what you do, and I appreciate the chance to speak. Um, yeah, we had we had quite the adventure, um, you know, right around the end of March with uh, with COVID and and. Um, uh, you know, a new addition to our family, really. Yeah, that's 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 where the the thing takes on a whole other side of it. You and I were talking off air. I, I kind of want to give everybody a sense of why you're pretty sure you had COVID-19, but you didn't. We were in this kind of gray area at the time in March where testing wasn't very prevalent. And unless you ended up in the hospital, you weren't going to get tested. But you were pretty sure you had it. But give us a sense of how that kind of progressed to that point. You know, our season, our season uh, finished on uh, February 23rd. Um, and so, uh, excuse me, 22nd. And so we, we were, we were wrapping up doing some exit interviews with our guys. Um, and then I took a recruiting trip out to, uh, the West Coast for about a week, um, to, uh, to follow up with some recruits that we had had. And at that time, you know, there was, there was growing concern, but there really weren't any, any major restrictions. People were saying, you know, maybe uh, sanitize your airplane seat and, and do that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which, which I did, um, but uh, you know, you know, I came back at back about fifth or sixth of March, I think, uh, and it was about ten days after that that we went into lockdown uh, here in Illinois uh, and at Aurora, and uh, pretty much right after we went into lockdown, I started to get um, what uh, what I now believe to be were uh, were symptoms of COVID, where uh, you know I had some body aches that were kind of out of nowhere in my uh, neck and back. Um, I had a, a ton of fatigue; was just tired all the time. Um, and these things kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, and then at the same time, uh, I lost my sense of taste and smell. And that's kind of a, a red flag now. At the time, that was just kind of an anecdotal thing, and, and there was no testing available, you know, for, for that kind of symptom. So I didn't think too much of it. I probably should have. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that led us into the end of March. And, you know, as it turns out, uh, my wife was nine months pregnant, and so... Um, we ended up, uh, going to the hospital on the 30th, uh, of March and, um, had a long labor from there and, and then kind of got struck by it right after, after labor when my wife, you know, um, came down with a fever and, um, and, uh, and, uh, some, some pneumonia in her lungs about an hour before we were to be discharged. And so, you know, we had to, they had to make some decisions as far as what they were going to do with, um, you know, our young son and, and myself. Yeah, talk about things starting to come off the rails at that point. I mean, I, yeah. I'm sure it was it was eerie enough to maybe be going through it yourself at home um, to some degree, restricted in some way, basically by work, not because you were sick. Yeah. Um, you're kind of recovering from that. Now you get the focus on the baby. I'm sure no one had any thoughts that... Where could this end up next? And you're saying she tested positive right before you guys were about to walk out of the hospital, right? Yeah. So, well, what ended up happening, it was a, it was a challenging labor. My wife is, is first of all, is just a, a, a warrior. I mean, uh, it's funny. We're talking, you know, you should really talk to her. Um, <laughs> because what she went through was a lot, a lot more significant than what I did. But, um, but 
you know, she had a, we had a we had a challenging labor. She ended up with a C-section, um, and, uh, and so we were in the hospital for an extra forty-eight hours. Um, and literally an hour or so before we were due to check out, she came down with a fever, and so of course everybody's on a hair trigger at that point in time, mm-hmm. and they did a chest X-ray, and then they found, you know, pneumonia, and so that was a presumptive positive test. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so at that point, you know, they had to make a decision on what to do with the presumptive positive. They obviously did a COVID test, um, and what they ended up doing was sending um, our, our son Malcolm and I home. So I was home with him, and about an hour after I got home, she got the results back, and she had tested positive. How much did that change? Now, I mean, again, we should, by the way, bearing the lead, congratulations on the little guy. <laughs> uh, we we kind of skipped right over that one. But how much did things, I mean, you're now home with your little guy. Did you get that in news and wonder, am I headed back to the hospital? Or what was, what was going on there? Because... Again, you're right. We're early in this to some degree uh, in March yeah. in in the United States. This was early. Um, did was there a plan? Did you did you know what you were going to do? Did did your wife know what was going on? It was really. I mean, it was really um, kind of evolving by the minute. Um, we we had you know what we were going to do. You know, when she had the presumptive positive with the pneumonia and the and the and the fever. I mean, the plan changed three times in fifteen minutes mm-hmm. initially. Um, you know, she was going to stay at the hospital. I was going to go home and our son was going to go into to the NICU. And then about five minutes after that, he was going to be able to stay with her and I was going to go home and isolate. And then five minutes after that, it, it, it turned into, um, no, we need to, um, you know, we need to send uh, baby and dad home and, and, and take care of mom. And, and that's no fault of the providers at all. Our, mm-hmm. our, uh, we were at Rush Copley Hospital here in Aurora and, and they're fantastic. I mean, uh, I, I, just to, I don't want to jump off topic, but um, sure. you know, in the days following, one of the priorities for us was to make sure that um, Malcolm was was getting breast milk because of the sure. um, tendency for antibiotics to, or antibiotics antibodies uh, to pass down. And we had you know the director of the floor at at Rush you know driving to our house, which is mm-hmm. about 25 minutes from the hospital, to bring breast milk to me. Um, so they were phenomenal, but there was just so little information at the time. There wasn't a protocol for infants who'd been exposed. There wasn't a clear protocol for pregnant mothers who, who um, were positive or likely positive um, or just deliver. I mean, it was totally new territory. So it was very much um, you know, a situation where we were kind of adjusting as the minutes went by, and, and um, my poor wife, you know, she went through this, this incredible labor. We had a big baby. Um, we're both tall people, so she she had a lot of work to do there. And then, you know, and then and then she gets hit by this. So she was incredibly. I mean, it, it, I just can't get over how amazing she was in in handling all of it. You didn't jump off topic because my my next question was, you know, listen, I I have two kids. Uh, my son was born during H one N one, so I'm familiar mm-hmm. with a lot of the restrictions that were in place. Uh, for that, and and I just yeah. kind of extrapolate out for what it was with COVID. So I, I was going to ask, you know, she's now home. I can understand keeping the baby there because a, if he's exposed, they can treat. But b, mom's there. You want him with mom. So yeah. I, I get all that. Um, and by the way, them changing five, three times in fifteen minutes. I, it sounds like a basketball coach during a game. Honestly, Matt, uh, <laughs> changing the game plan uh, three Very times true, in yeah. fifteen minutes. So I'm not surprised by that. Um, but yeah, I was going to ask, how do you guys deal with it? Because now you're home and, and I know all mothers, including my wife, when I told her this story, rolled their eyes a little bit on this next question, but you're now home alone with the baby. 
Um, oh my gosh, you're up, you know, all the time with a baby. Yeah, of course, that's how it works. But when you and I talked, I got a sense it was more than just being up because the baby's up. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when we were at the hospital, because we had a longer stay before, you know, all of this kind of went down, I got about two good runs at, at feeding, at changing, and at swaddling. <laughs> Which, by the way, as you as you and everybody else who has young children knows, ha- is nowhere near enough experience nope. for anybody. No. So, so, <laughs> so, so I kind of, you know, was just kind of found myself heading home, you know, with um, with the baby in the car seat. I hadn't done that yet. I hadn't done the car seat thing yet. Mm-hmm. So that, I had to get some help with that and then figure it out. But look, you know, um, my wife is a uh, is a certified nurse midwife. She understands uh-huh. infant care quite a bit, and so. She gave me a, a pretty good prep for things, and then we have a number of family friends as well as the, the uh, doctors and nurses on the on the floor at Rush who were all really communicative and helpful. Uh, we were the only patients, you know, like this that they uh, had obviously to that point, so they sure. were they were very engaged. But you know, the, the the toughest thing about it, honestly, aside from the fact that my poor wife, you know, is is experiencing, you know, days three through eight of yeah. our son's life over FaceTime. I mean, that's, that's, that's just a, I don't know what to say about that other than that's, that's excruciating. But, sure. um, but, but beyond that, you know, the part that was, that was really challenging, at least from where I sat was, you know, I was told to watch for symptoms and anybody that has a newborn knows that one thing they don't do is breathe normally, right? They right. gurgle, they snort, they pop, they stop breathing for 10 seconds and then start up again. Yes. It's all totally normal. So I got, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, basically, I didn't, I didn't sleep much for about four days, Dave. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was going to happen every, anyway. Yeah, every little squeak or snort, I'm going over to make sure that, you know, um, unnecessarily, as it turns out. But, um, you know, but I, I, again, I mean, that, you know, that was, that was my job at that point in time. Everything else yep. kind of stopped. I got incredible support from our community here. Um, you know, I gotta say, our athletic director, Jim Hammond, was checking in with me every single day to see if I need anything. Um, same with, uh, James Lancaster, the former coach of Aurora, who's our VP for enrollment. The same with, uh, Dr. Uh, Sherrick, our president, um, was calling and checking and how can we help you? And, you know, can we get a food train going for you? Or, I mean, they, the support from the community at Aurora and then, um, you know, in our, in our smaller neighborhood here was just, unbelievable so it was challenging but um it was also a good lesson in in how people come together you know um and and we were so well supported i just i i can't tell you how thankful and grateful i am for that to say nothing of our friends from back back in walla walla um and then on, on the west coast yeah i i can imagine uh, by the way sir we we call it video conferencing now on the show we don't have any uh, official sponsorship with apple so we, we have to be careful we don't want to give them free advertising this is a very popular <laughs> show and uh, we don't want to give them the thousands upon thousands of reviews i'm just kidding uh quickly before we move on to what why i really wanted to hear this story your wife obviously by herself in the hospital because you're not allowed to go back and visit and we, we all know the covid um protocols as it were it's locked down in a hospital um yeah. i mean to be honest my sister just gave birth to her first and and there's others i know who've gone through this it, it was touch and go whether husbands uh or fathers could be even be involved with these pregnancies or these births at one point so she's by herself how did how did she do uh how did she recover and i i'm assuming everything is free and clear by now yeah she's doing great i should i should have mentioned that from the get-go we're, we're all doing great um our son is healthy uh he's 
Uh, he's he's doing a trial run of being a college student, which means he sleeps all day and he screams all night. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's normal. We're hoping to <laughs> we're hoping to bring him back to earth here in the next few weeks. Good luck. He's very healthy. So so no no complaints really. That means he's healthy. Uh, um, my kids are ten and seven. They're not back to earth yet. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Thanks, <Dave. laughs> well, you know how to give a guy a shot in the arm, there, man. Thank you. Just trying to be helpful. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, but no, she, she's doing great. You know, at, at the time, I mean, again, you know, we were we were communicating over uh, video applications uh, several <laughs> times, yes, several times a day. Um, you know, and, and little things. You know, where you know when, when I'm feeding him or burping him, that she can see him, and and um, she's updating me on her symptoms. Um, you know, it was it was a little scary. She was on oxygen for a few days, and. Um, and she had, she had a little of shortness of breath and I mean, it was scary, you know, she, sure. she, she, um, it, it was a struggle at times, but I mean, like I said earlier, she's, she's a warrior and, uh, and she just, she just kind of fought through it. And, you know, within, I think she came down to the, the regulation, the requirement was she couldn't have, um, contact with him without being masked up and scrubbed, um, mm. until, Six days post fever, so post the last fever symptom that she had. Got it. And she was, like I said, she just kind of—I don't know how, given how much she's already been through with labor by itself—but she, she turned around and you know she came home, and we only had one day like that where she had to wear a mask, and then she was free and clear. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I did the easy part, um, and and um, you know, but you, you can't. You can't underestimate a mother's love and want to be with her baby. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, um, I know that's not a, uh, necessarily a medical perspective, but from my mind, that was that was a big part of it. I mean, she sure. just was not going to be um, denied being around her, her little boy. And, and um, that's pretty, pretty spectacular. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, the whole reason I wanted to give this kind of perspective was, one, to give anybody who hadn't understood what people go through when dealing with COVID, some perspective, and, and granted, we're not talking ICU cases, and, and we're not talking severe, and, and I, I, can, I understand that, but it gives somebody at least say, hey, yeah, we know Matt Airy, or, or, or we know, and right. okay, now I know somebody. But the other reason, Matt, was I, I want to kind of extrapolate this forward. You as a basketball coach, you just got done with your season. You can appreciate what this could do if you're in the middle of your school year, or you're in the middle of your your season and a couple of your players get it or, or you would have gotten it. I'm not saying again, I just mean if this had time differently um, or we're dealing with it down the road and you lose a couple of assistant coaches because um, right. they come down with it. How, how much of this just out of, out of curiosity, does it change the way of life? I mean, how much does it shift you out of gear of what you're doing? Even if by all arguments sake, the symptoms aren't major. Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, I didn't I didn't have the the major symptoms, but but just what I experienced, assuming it was it was COVID, um, uh, it was it was hard, man. It was you know I get about two to three hours of good work done, and then I would just feel like I got hit by a train. Mm-hmm. You know, like I couldn't, I, you know, one of those deals you turn your head and it feels like part of your head didn't turn with you, um, huh. and and you're just kind of just just sapped, uh, and that's that was on the most kind of mild level. Now there are those who are totally asymptomatic too, right? Um, and there's certainly those who have much more, you know, severe symptoms. Um, but you know, from the from the perspective of dealing with it, you know, I guess it kind of depends on where you fall on that scale. Um, to my mind, you know, a lot of where the precautions have been, you know, well founded um, for for athletics and for basketball have been 
Um, and I'm not saying everybody made the right calls or all the lockdowns had to, or, you know, cancellations had to happen when they did or anything like that. But, but the danger in my mind is for presumptively healthy people like myself or our players, um, that you might bring it home to somebody that's more vulnerable. Yeah. And I say that cause that's exactly what I did, um, unintentionally, you know? And so, sure. um, that's the part that worries me is, you know, you're, you're, you go home for spring break having, you know, played in, in the tournament or, or having finished your regular season or whatever, and you take it home and you visit with family and you have families, family members who are susceptible, um, you know, or immunocompromised, and then it gets, you know, much, much more serious. So, um, you know, uh, having said that, I do think things are different now compared to mm-hmm. what they were when, when we went through it. Well, yeah, and to that to that extent, I, I want to ask a very loaded question because things can change. Things have changed since March. They've changed since last week. Um, right. By the time we're talking to you and by the time this airs, it will have changed yet again. Um, and it'll change quite a bit when we get to the season. But how much has it changed how you might have attacked the season if you didn't know what the symptoms were like and didn't appreciate what it was like to go through? Has it, Do you think it's changed or because it happened so fast? You only have one mentality. I think it does change things. You know, this is something that's going to be with us going into the winter. You know, even if a vaccine or a really effective treatment pops up um, before then, this is something that we're going to, to deal with. And so I think that the, um, it's required that we have to change and have a different mentality. And I think, I think it's been admirable to see how many, many people across, um, you know, the, the sports landscape, especially in, in um, intercollegiate athletics and, and in basketball, have kind of embraced that idea that we're trying to find a way to play, um, but not at the expense of, of sacrificing people or family members of players who may be immunocompromised. Um, and so I think you have to take it seriously. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, I can tell you from experience, it's not a flu. Um, it, it's not something, you know, if you have symptoms, they're not your typical symptoms. They stick around a long time. It's really, really contagious. Um, and so I think we have to, we have to be mindful of that in terms of, um, you know, our contact as coaches with players, in terms of players and their contact you know, with each other, in terms of having fans. Nobody wants to play games without fans. Right. Um, but if we get to have a season, boy, I, I, you know, the, the a value of, of, of basketball, and I won't go too much into that, that's a whole different show. Um, <laughs> but the value... The value of team athletics and basketball is so much about overcoming adversity and and um, finding finding answers to new questions and new challenges. And so I think I think it seems to me that the NABC and so many so many coaches and administrators are trying to find ways to to do that safely. And if that means we play without fans, then we you know we play without fans for for a time until it's safe to do that again. Um, I'm hopeful that that's going to be how things turn out. That we're going to be able to play the games that we that we have scheduled all of us um, in, in Division Three, and that we're going to be able to do so in a way that's that's safe, where we can take appropriate measures if people test positive or uh, appropriate precautions if if um, if we have negative um, teams and uh, we have you know a good immunity to it. I'm curious because you know up until then, again, we've lived through SARS and H1N1. We live with the flu constantly, and no, this is not. This is worse than the flu. We should point that yeah. out. It's more contagious than the flu by by exponential levels. But we we have gone through all of those other things, and we live with flu constantly during the basketball season. And I know teams that have been knocked down by supposedly the flu. Yeah. I certainly look back now yeah. and at one team and wonder if it was the flu or if it wasn't the, possibly COVID at its early stages, but. 
how much does that now change? Does this change how you go forward with teams, individuals who might be sick, who come up with it? Will, will this change how you, you know, okay, you had the flu, he can be back in a couple of days. Or is this going to change how you or maybe other coaches go about handling uh, the team when there is illness? I think in the short term, yes. Uh, absolutely. There's no question. Um, it's because it's such a kind of an imminent threat um, at the moment. But um, I think in the long term, um, I think we'll see to a certain degree uh, going back to the way things were in terms of how we handle, um, you know, flu, cold symptoms, that kind of thing. I imagine we'll be we'll be more. Care- I, I think I think when the, when you see the or when you look at things that might be permanent, you know, results. You know, I think the way people use water bottles. You know, mm. um, so I think that's a big one. I think, you know, are you, do you have 12 water bottles for a team of 16 guys and everybody's taking a pull or are you from different water bottles or are you, uh, you know, using cups um, that are disposable and high waste, you know, or how are you, how are you handling that situation where you're limiting the contact, um, you know, on, on water bottles and things like that. Um, you know, you might see, um, you might see certain surfaces, wiped down you might see more care taken with say mouth guards if a mouth guard comes out or something like mm-hmm. that um i think these are you know when you start getting down to and, and again part of what has happened here is we've learned more you know yeah. uh, we've learned more about how the virus is transmitted you know when i when i went out to the west coast everybody was worried about surfaces and now you know with more research it's going at it's really not nearly that contagious on a surface so i was you know the person sitting next to me on the airplane was probably a much much bigger threat to me than my tray table but i wiped down my tray table you know uh-huh. i didn't try to wipe down the person next to me i wouldn't have gone over well but but um <laughs> but point being i think that's where you're going to start seeing some of these measures in the long term that might stick around i think uh water bottles and how we use those and share those i think um mouth guards and and kind of how we take care with those i think those are going to be some long-term long-term adjustments that that are going to be made um I, i will say in the short term you know, I think that we're looking at, we're going to be looking at testing. We're going to be looking at players who test positive having to sit out longer than, um, you know, we've ever seen really with, um, you know, a flu or a cold where you know, we have to take precautions that way. I'm really hopeful that we can get to antibody testing that's reliable as well, because I think in that, in that way we can start kind of ruling out um, uh, some people who may be uh, more likely to be immune and, and thus uh, not a threat to, to uh, be contagious. Um, but I think those those um, methods and some of the contact tracing. I think we're going to have to to navigate that for a year, you know, uh, hopefully just a year, and then and then um, get back to a semblance of normalcy after that. Um, I think if we fall short of that, we risk putting putting our athletes and and then more importantly their families um, and and um, the people that are that are susceptible um, to complications at risk if we're not taking care to to do some of the testing and do some of the isolation, even though it's, you know, it's not convenient for anybody at any point mm-hmm. in time to have to isolate, you know, um, student athletes. But I think that's probably our reality here if we're going to get that season in, which um, we all want to do. But hopefully that's a, that's a one-time situation and we get to move on and, and have, um, you know, return to normal play for the most part, you know, um, coming out of it. Yeah, it should be interesting. I appreciate the perspective on all of that. Um, it will be fascinating moving forward, and I agree. I think some of these, we were already changing how we handled water bottles. Uh, we're mm-hmm. just going to probably continue to evolve on a lot of those topics. 
Um, we could go on and on. We could also talk about how important sports are going to be for schools to stay open. But as you said yep. uh, earlier, that's a whole nother show. Uh, let's Before we let you go, I know we've had a lot of your time, but quickly, let's talk about your team. You took over last year. You guys went 10 and 15. Um, you, you won for your last five to finish strong, as you said, on February 22nd with a win. How are you looking? If, if this season were to go as normal, and obviously a lot can change, but let's just say season's going normal. How do, how do you think the team will evolve into your second year on, on the, at the helm? We're, we're really excited about, about um, our upcoming season. You know, listen, Aurora has had a long tradition of success um, and, a, and a lineage of coaches that's been, that have been really, really strong. Um, you know, and, and I'm the first person to come in and kind of shake that up and, and be brought in outside of the, the coaching tree in about 30, 40 years. So we definitely had some, some transition to deal with uh, in terms of that and, and just doing things in a different way, a different way from how our returning players were recruited to play. Um, what, what's really exciting for, uh, for us and, and for me is that we got through a lot of that and we established some, some identity uh, some cultural identity that I think is really, really uh, important. Um, it's what I know from my experience uh, leads to success on the national level. And I think we made some incredible strides, and we've got a, a, a talented group of players coming back. We've got a great class coming in. Um, so, you know, I think we've kind of paid our dues a little bit and, and gone through the pains of transition and growing in year one. And like you said, we, we finished so strong down the stretch, and that's that's a direct reflection of our guys and their buy-in and, and them taking that to another level. And so if we get to start from that point and build, uh, I really, really like our chances to do something special uh, in this season coming up. Well, once again, man, I appreciate the time and giving us your story and, and your wife's story uh, on, on dealing with what is definitely derailed everything in the grand scheme yeah. of things. Uh, congratulations again on, on the baby boy. Uh, our best to you and your wife. Uh, enjoy the off season if you can, and and we wish you luck next season. We hope we're, we're talking to you sometime soon. As always, we give the the guests the final word. Any final thoughts you want to share with those maybe tuned in? Look, I think that everybody in Division Three, every player, every coach uh, has has had a a really difficult time with uh, what's happened in the last few months on a variety of levels. Um, and uh, but the, the bright spots that I've observed uh, are are how our community comes together and supports each other. On the micro level, for uh, for me and for our situation that we talked about, it was uh, it was our our uh, community, the, the uh, city of uh, Aurora and Aurora University, our, our leadership, um, all the way on down, you know, coming coming up to support us when when we really needed it. Um, and I think you see the same thing happening, um, you know, across the board in in Division Three. Coaches getting creative with supporting their student athletes. Uh, student athletes getting creative with trying to to have closure on their year. Um, you know, it's one thing to be a down and out, and it's another thing to respond to what happens to you. And it's been inspiring, um, you know, for me to see how many uh, coaches and student athletes across the country are are just taking this in stride and and making something positive out of it. You know, and and uh, Dave, I got to thank you for your role in that. D um, three hoops is uh, is a beacon. For uh, for so many student athletes who commit a ton of their uh, their energy um, and and really their their college experience to the pursuit of excellence in basketball, 
and uh, and you guys do an admirable job of, of covering it. And I think um, the way that you continue to, to provide content and try to provide value for student-athletes um, in the midst of all this is, is just another example of that community coming together. So I can't thank you enough for the work that you do and, and how much you've uh, helped support all of us through this. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. I don't know, I don't know if you needed to shoehorn me in there, but... Uh, I appreciate it. I agree with you, though, how the student-athletes, coaches, administrators, and programs have reacted, especially the spring sports, who lost so much. Um, yeah. uh, it has been admirable to watch, and, and we're just a small part of that whole thing. But I appreciate your words. Uh, enjoy, like I said, the offseason. Good luck. Stay healthy. And I look forward to talking to you, whether it's on air or off air, down the road, sir. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. He's Matt Airy, joining us on the Blue Frame Technology Hoopsville Hotline from Aurora. Once again, thanks to Matt Ari of Aurora for joining us on the show to talk about his COVID-19 experience and his wife's. I, I cannot imagine what that is like going through, um, but we are glad that everybody is safe and sound. We talk to Matt often and touch base with him, and last we heard, everybody is doing well. Um, as I said in the first block, how things play out from here is so up in the air, and Schools are going to follow in Bowdoin's footsteps. Some schools are going to be like, no, we want students on campus. Uh, MIT, for example, has announced that in the first semester, 60% of students will be on campus. How that impacts sports is unknown because they don't know the 60% who will be on campus. Will sports have a priority? I don't know. Should they? It's that there are some tough, tough, tough choices to be made by schools when it comes to this coronavirus. Um, there are going to be some tough decisions that are made in terms of sports. There are going to be tough decisions being made in terms of, of students on campus. I, I cannot imagine, especially for what is a, a, a issue that is changing every day. As I'm recording this podcast, we're now seeing record numbers of positive cases in this state, and it's not because in the state, I shouldn't say that in this country, uh, Maryland, we're doing pretty well, but relatively speaking, um, and it's not because we have more testing. It's it's because the virus hasn't gone away. You know, I, and I don't think anybody expected it to go away, but I thought they maybe it would be maintained in some capacity. It clearly isn't. Um, how you know you you ask schools two, three weeks ago before numbers started increasing what they were thinking, you'd probably have a very different answer than now. And you're going to have a very different answer in two to three weeks from now, depending on how things turn around from here. So I will say this, and I'll get on my soapbox for a short bit. And, and I, and I realize this may not go well with some of you, but here's the deal. If you want to see college sports or high school sports or, or professional sports at full throat in their best capacity, even with marginal crowds or even with no crowds, to be blunt, you have to do your part to help keep this virus from getting out of control. It's, it's borderline out of control right now. If that means wearing a mask where you go, please wear a mask. Because as a, from a selfish point of view, this is my career. If there is no sports to call, if colleges do not have sports to call, even though web streaming is going to become more popular, they may not want a broadcaster to come and do a game because of the possibility of infection. So if you want these things, if you don't want to homeschool your child again next, next year, and I, I'd be on that list. Let's do our part to try and help control things. Um, I, the, the scary part is I think winter with the flu season could make COVID pretty nasty. 
Well, here, here's hoping that could be wrong, right? But we need to do our part. So forgive me for getting on the soapbox a little bit there, but this is very different for us. This is very unheard of. And if we want to see things go back to relative normal, and I understand normal will never be the same. If we want to see things go back to relative normal, please, please do your part and help us get to that point so that we can have sports again. So we can maybe have crowds at sporting events and some of us can continue to work. Um, not that your decision should be based on me, but there's a huge side effect to all of this. And, and I hope everyone understands how that plays out. Anyway, I digress. When we come back, we will switch gears, talk to Justin's winners. Gordon Mann and Ryan Scott pick up the heavy lifting. They'll talk to Sydney Cop of DePaul and Kenna Gilmore. Those are coming ahead and still ahead. Landry Kalsmalski of Swarthmore joins us to talk about what could have been at Swarthmore. You're listening to the Hoopsville June podcast presented by D3Hoops.com from the WBCA and ABC studios. More after this. For the love of the game, but for those of us who are Division Three student-athletes, it's more than that, a lot more. Sure, the game is important, but as we work so hard to build both mind and body, it's more about team. That is why NCAA Division Three teamed up with Special Olympics, and in giving the gift of sport to those for whom it seemed an impossible dream, we are working to make this a better world. Help us keep that dream alive. You can make a difference. Football has taught me a lot throughout my life. It's definitely had a huge imprint on who I am as a person. Competing at a Division III level created that opportunity for me to go to college. Not only was I the first one in my family to graduate college, but I was really the first one to even go. Being the first one, I'm breaking that cycle, and, and now that I've graduated, I'm not sure what's the next step, but I know I have a lot of doors open. And a lot of those are open because I played football and ran track here at Otterbein. We are the coaches of women's basketball. We are leaders and teachers, dreamers and winners. We are professionals who conduct ourselves ethically and with integrity. We place the education, safety and well-being of the athletes we coach above all else and teach them the fundamental values they need to succeed in life. We are coaches united for the good of our game and those who play it. We are the WBCA. Welcome back to the Hoopsville Podcast for the month of June. I'm your host, Dave McHugh. Thanks for taking the time. Presented by D3Hoops.com from the WBCA and ABC Studios. We didn't get a chance to talk to the Jostens winners this past season because, well, everything came to a crashing halt, including the tournaments and the Jostens presentations. But we wanted to catch up with those individuals, and Gordon Mann and Ryan Scott agreed to do the heavy lifting for us. We'll start off on the women's side. Gordon Mann talking to DePaul, now graduate, Sydney Cop about the honor and what she's up to. Each March, as the part of our end-of-year celebration, we take time to sit down with the Jostens Trophy winners, and it's really one of our favorite interviews of the season. Jostens Trophy is the top trophy in Division Three men's and women's basketball, and the players who win it represent the best in the sport, academically, athletically, and in terms of community service. So they always have very interesting stories. They're insightful and, of course, great basketball players. This year, like a lot of things, the trophy ceremony was wiped out by the pandemic. But thanks to technology, as long as we can get it to work, we will be joined here by Sydney Cobb, the guard for the DePaul University Tigers, 
and the 2020 Jocelyn's Trophy Award winner. Sydney, congratulations on that. You must have a separate wing of your house devoted to uh, trophies and awards because you've got a ton of them now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me and for the congratulations. Yeah, I, I was I was really lucky enough to win. Like, obviously, this award means like meant so much to me, especially when the athletic director, my coach, told me about it. They, you could just tell how happy they were and how proud they were for a special award that encompasses everything that has to do with being a student athlete. So, tell us a little bit about the end of your academic year. You've probably been asked this a thousand times, but uh, everything was remote learning. I'm sure in Greencastle as well as everywhere else. So. What was it like to finish your academic career? Just how how did you do that? Did you just sit in your dorm room or sit in your house for the last two months on Zoom every day? Yeah, it was – so we all went back to our hometowns. And so I actually had – because it was my second semester of senior year, I basically two of my classes were senior seminars and basically a lot of independent work anyway. So that those two classes didn't change too much just – when we would meet with our professor, would like you said, be on Zoom. But one of the classes was really interesting, actually. It was called Philosophy for Children, and we were actually learning how to teach philosophy to second graders. So we would once a week go into the local elementary school and teach them philosophy. So that obviously had to get completely rearranged. So that oh, was wow. probably the, the only class that I had that really just had to get, com- like, just a complete change of pace. And so we, we ended up doing – actually kind of interesting in the Netflix show Black Mirror we had to watch that and then write on the philosophical themes that we saw which one did you show them what was that which one did you show them um well our professor would choose like certain episodes yeah no not for the the second graders were out of it unfortunately but (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah he would choose like yeah it was really interesting looking at it in that light and just you know thinking of the themes you could get out of a show rather than just watching it for entertainment. But that was, it was, it was definitely weird. The hardest part for sure was just leaving all my friends and just not getting that last semester of college to just celebrate and, you know, just be with your friends and kind of commemorate the last four years together, especially at a small school when I feel like, like a lot of the event, the last few weeks leading up to graduation are like there's traditions and then just a few like events that, just, I mean, I was really sad to miss and not get to experience with my classmates. What did graduation look, uh, graduation weekend look like for you? So it was, I assume, like most other places, just a uh, a virtual commencement. But what was really, what's really cool that DePaul has already told us is that a, a year from actually, like I think this upcoming weekend, so or one of the first weekends in June of 2021, is is when they're going to hold our actual graduation and it's going to be from Thursday to like a Thursday to Sunday affair. And we are going to get to experience a few of those traditions that I talked about. So one of the main ones is the pond or the stars. And that's where they pretty much line a lot of campus with like these really pretty lights and just, you get to go around and just celebrate with like the professors and your parents and everybody. So it's really nice. them. they're trying to let us have a few of those experiences still in that weekend a year from now. Yeah, I, 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 the things that, that, from a college student perspective, I imagine were hardest to lose if your college, you know, was like yeah. mine several years ago is you have that whole last week, which is really you're done with finals, you're done with paper, mm-hmm. and it's just one last time to celebrate with your, with your senior class. And I imagine losing that was, was very difficult. 
Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. But, I mean, obviously there's there's more important things going on, but it still isn't easy to not get to do that, and especially, like, after four years of hard work to just be together and celebrate with your classmates. What was the last interaction you had with your team? I know some teams, you 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 lost them the, in the tournament on Sunday. Some teams will do some sort of end-of-year banquet mm-hmm. or turning your jerseys in or all that, throwing all these mental images in my mind. Did any yeah. of that happen for you? Yeah, so we actually – so our school told, told us on – Wednesday that we would all have to leave by Sunday and Tuesday the day before is when we actually turned in our jerseys and and tried to pick a day for our banquet and and all that but obviously a banquet in person didn't happen so I think that within this next month we're going to try have a virtual one and yeah so I think that's going to be and I'm hoping maybe eventually in the future we can have an in-person one but it's just going to be hard with you know like not everybody being on campus anymore, but, sure. but yeah, I just, I know I definitely had our coaching staff actually. So there's me and one other senior. They, so we found out Wednesday and that Friday, there's like a really nice restaurant in town that they took us to and bought us dinner and just had like a last dinner with us to just celebrate and, you know, just kind of grieve with us that we're losing our last right. semester of college. So we'll talk a little bit about your post-graduation plans in a bit. Let's talk about your basketball career. So that's what our audience certainly knows you most for. <laughs> you, you finished as DePaul's all-time leading scorer, and that's at really one of the blue blood, blue blood programs in Division Three, right? There are certain teams that are good every single year. They're in the top 10 or 15 every single year. So it's not like you're the all-time leading scorer at some school nobody's ever heard of. And yeah. <laughs> I, I look at your numbers – Freshman year, you scored nine points a year. Sophomore, 12. Junior, 16. And then senior, 22. So what were you adding to your game that allowed you to score more and more every year? I think really just the main thing was confidence. Like, So you get there freshman year, and obviously going from high school, most players who are playing in college already have, like, they probably were the best players on their team. And then all of a sudden you get to college and you realize that your whole class that's been coming with you were all the best players on your team. So I was lucky enough to start my freshman year, so I definitely got a ton of playing time. But I would just really, after every year, when we would have our end-of-season interviews, I would pretty much ask the coaching staff, if you were to give a scout, if you were the opposing team and were to give a scouting report on me, like you give to us about other teams, tell me what mine would be and tell me what you would basically put in there, How what's the best way to stop this kid. And then basically that summer I would just work at, taking that mark out of my scouting report says I can't stop that part of my game anymore. Did you have a conversation with Coach Huffman this year about scoring more? You, I think you were the program, I think you set the program uh, mark for scoring in a single season this year. Yeah, no, she, not at all. She's just very much of the type of coach where if, you know, you're scoring, that's great, but it's more so about defense. It's more so about playing as a team and just, you know, making the right play. So, she definitely didn't ever say that, hey, Sydney, like, we need you to score this much or anything like that. She just kind of – it really just felt all the time that I had the green light. She trusted me with the ball. And so and so I just felt confident that I could just play my game and she would feel confident in the shots I was taking, the passes I was making. So I think that really helped me knowing that after every game, my coach had my back and just really, you know, respected me as a player as much as I respect her as a coach. I'm talking about Coach uh, Chris Hoffman, who 
you were on the floor for her when she won, won her 600th game. I guess that would have been not last December, but the December before that. Uh, and she's on the national and on the national committee, won national championships. Certainly one of the highly regarded women's coaches. What's mm-hmm. the secret to her success? What makes her so good? I mean, I th- I could name <laughs> so many things, but. I really think it just goes back to kind of what I said, just her ability to make relationships with her players. Like, even now, I'm a graduated player, and still I probably talk to her almost every week since we left school, and just she's always checking on me. And I think that as much as she wanted us to win, she also wants us to succeed in life and school and just everything. So I really, like, when I would go out on the floor, I not only wanted to win for myself and my teammates but I wanted to win for her just because I mean she's just oh like that like role model person where like you know like you don't want to let her down because you know how much she gives to this program you know how much she cares about this program and players so it's just she's just like like I can't even describe she's just like a phenomenal coach in person and like I I don't think I could have lucked out anymore with just like just somebody who stayed after practice every single day and just rebound for 30 minutes for me and just like like it's just those little things and like just chatting about how my day wasn't just her understanding like like more than just how like I'm doing on a basketball level just really yeah. when you look back at it, it meant so much I have a kind of uh, I have a strange would you rather question for you are you are you okay. ready yeah right, here it is so I know you you guys had a great season you lost to Loris who's a really good team in the in the second round mm-hmm. and then the entire tournament was over like 5 days later yeah. So would you rather have beaten Loris and had senior season end with that kind of question mark on the end of it in your career as well, or were you happier to have it end knowing that you went, you know, kind of went as far as you could? Yeah, that's funny that you asked that. Actually, this is probably the third time I've been asked this question. <laughs> um, I'm not as clever as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because I think just me personally, like I actually talked about it with Coach Huffman, this exact question, and yeah. – I remember her saying to me, she said, Sydney, if when I first thought about this question, obviously as a coach, I thought I, I wanted to win and be at the, you know, like the, 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 the sweet 16 and the highest caliber that we could have gotten to. Right. But then she said, but then I thought of one player and like she was talking about me. And she said that she doesn't think she would have been able to get me off the floor that day. She was like, yeah. I literally don't think that if we made it to that next weekend and we were in the middle of a practice or just wherever at the hotel, and they told, and they told like our team, but like especially me. She she literally said that I do not think that I could have that you would have ever gotten over it, or that yeah. I could have even made you leave that court and get on the bus back home to Greencastle. So, I mean, I personally just being a fierce competitor, I absolutely hate that we lost. So, like deep down, I I almost want to say that I wish we won, and I just had to live with that for the rest of my life because at least I know that we had a chance of winning it all and that we, and that I finished my last collegiate game ever on a win. But looking at it from her point of view, I mean, I, I honestly agree with her. I don't know if I would have ever gotten over it. Like I just, it just would have absolutely killed me. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to a, turn to a half. Well, let's turn to a different subject. You could tell me if it's a happier subject or not. (laughs) Tell folks, tell folks what your major was at DePaul. I was a political science major. Okay, and what was your what was the best class you took there? Hmm. I would. So, I civil rights and civil liberties was with 
one of my favorite professors, just a very old school, tough professor. And I probably learned the most that I've ever learned in any class, just because we're going through so many court cases and just learning just about the most famous court case and just like the stuff that the main and as a mainstream, just learning about them in like history classes you don't learn. So I found that class really, really interesting. But I was like, I also took um, the psych, the psychology of politics, and that one really interested me as well. I I obviously enjoyed a lot of my classes at DePaul just because I loved my time at DePaul and, and the political science department as a whole was obviously I chose them for a reason. So they were great professors and a great department. But those two really stick out in my head. So the Dawson's Trophy uh, Award announcement talks about your work on in a different kind of court. Not the basketball court, but the family court. Tell folks what family court is and what you were doing there. So what what I was doing, it was I would go in family court, and it would be over ch- child cases. So basically, but not, not in the sense of, like, divorce and, like, what type of, like, you know, ownership or whatever parents should have of their children. It was more so, it was children who got taken out of their home due to, any any number of reasons of types of negligence it could be you know abuse drugs whatever it is and so i what i did was i worked with kids who got taken away from their family and had to move in with a different a, a family member or to go to the foster care system or whatever it might be and so i would just meet with them and basically hang out with them and learn about who they are as people and what and really what they wanted and if they understood what was going on with their parents and what they believe is the best option for them. And what my role was was to be the kid's voice in court because when this, when the position of a CASA volunteer was made, it was realized that the child's voice wasn't heard in court even though it was all about them, but it was focused on what the parents wanted, what the parents were saying, but the kid was getting lost in the system. So I write court reports before every court day, and then I go in and testify basically just what they say to me and what I believe is in their best interest from spending time with them. Now, I don't know if you heard that in the background. Did you hear the voice of my child? As you I did. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to edit that out. That's, uh, that's, that's the perils from working from home. I <laughs> will we'll track you down. There is no hiding from him. Uh, <laughs> so on a more serious note, so family court, incredibly draining, right? This is frequently, you mentioned custody, this is divorce, this is foster care. This is really, really weedy stuff. This is not, you know, finger painting with kindergartners. Did you come out of your time in family court feeling exhausted? I can't imagine going from that to playing basketball. <laughs> yeah, well, the lucky part was, that, so this past season I had, I was working with two two girls and they're just so bright and so happy and just I was actually I would love to go on visits with them because they they were just very like I they were almost like at the age where they understood what was going on but they also really just enjoyed life and enjoyed seeing me so it, it I definitely enjoyed going to see them because it made me feel better and made me realize like you know you get perspective when you see like wow these look at these little girls and how well they're doing and how well they're taking this scenario and they're so young. Right. And, you know, and you just kind of think about your own life and how blessed you were, like I was to grow up in the household that I was. So, yeah. 
But, yeah, like you said, going in court could be tough, especially with, you know, hearing some parents just if they're not caring for their kids or, like, doing the right. taking the steps that you that you want them to take for their kids because you know how great the kids are and you want the best for them. And sometimes it's hard to see that, you know, parents are, aren't doing everything that they can. Yeah. Well, it must have been transformative, too, because uh, let's talk a little bit about what you're going to do uh next you've got you've got two options so i already told you this story but for the listeners as i was typing your name into google they advised to anticipate what you're going to type and as i was typing sydney cop it says sydney cop germany what is that yeah so right when we left for from school due to the pandemic i kind of well it actually happened the last game after we lost and I was just, you know, a wreck in the locker room as well as my as my other teammates just because, you know, nobody wants to lose and we don't we, we loved hanging out with each other every day, but I kind of also realized that I wasn't only that way because our season ended because I'm gonna be really sad to leave my teammates and the coaches everything, but also just because I realized I absolutely wasn't ready to give up basketball and wasn't ready to give up all the hard work I've put in ever since I was, you know, in middle school. So I decided that I wanted to try and see if there was a way that I could play professional basketball in Europe. And I basically just kind of just did whatever I could. I didn't, I didn't know anywhere where to go with it. So I just called, I called some of my old trainers. I asked the coaching staff at DePaul what they knew. And eventually I just got a few contacts of maybe like a friend of a friend who knew somebody who played in Europe. And I said, would you mind asking her via Facebook or just asking for her number if I could chat with her and eventually I I talked to a a girl who was my uncle's who my uncle's a lawyer so his he's a defense attorney the prosecutor he goes against in court his daughter played <laughs> European basketball and I said can I have her number and so we chatted and she gave me the name of her agent and I ended up really liking her and kind of long story short I ended up getting a contract basically within two weeks of signing with my agent for a team in Brunswick, Germany. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. And Thank I know you. It's, it's very difficult, too. We had, I won't, I won't, I won't, <laughs> I don't know if it's confidential which one we were contacted by, but we were contacted by one of the, one of the other All-Americans on the team who expressed an interest in playing professionally, and we did a little digging on her behalf. I didn't realize how hard it was to find an agent. We, we connected with, yeah. with Chelsea Swears, who had a really good career, really outstanding career in Australia and Greece. And she said, she basically told us, just keep trying to get it. Just keep calling the agents until one of them picks up the phone. And we found yeah. another, we found a coach who, um, who is play who did play internationally. And, and she had sort of the same experience. So it just sounds like kind of happenstance the way you found your agent. Is that right? Yeah. It, it really, like even talking to some of my trainers and one of my trainers actually played in Europe. He even said that he was blown away when I called him that day and told him that I had gotten offered a contract because he was just like, with his experience, it was so much a longer, longer yeah. time and just kind of constantly waiting, constantly continuing to work on your basketball game without knowing if there's really an end in sight. So I'm really lucky though, because now I just constantly, you know, I'm still working hard and really know what I'm working right. towards and like where, where this is going to lead me to. Now, I know you've been to, to Ireland. Have you been to Germany before? No, I haven't, actually. Yeah, so I'm really excited, especially the location of it allows me to 
see a, a array of different countries because it's like right in the smack dab of Europe. Right, right. Yeah, I remember the story someone told me where instead of having an, an argument about whether they should go to have an Italian, you know, go to an Italian restaurant or a French restaurant, they were like, this is in the western part of Germany, why don't we just drive to Italy or drive to France? Yeah. <laughs> so that'll... That will be a nice experience for you, but yeah. you do have you do have options. Another congratulations! You received one of the NCA's postgraduate scholarships. So this is twenty-one uh, college athletes per season per gender. So twenty-one women college athletes get a ten thousand dollar one-time scholarship, and you got it this year. So congratulations! And how, so how are you going to use it? I guess you can't use it to outfit your room in, in Germany, huh? Yeah, no. So what? Actually, luckily <laughs> enough, because of Corona, there it's usually just it has to be for the upcoming school year. But oh. due to Corona, yeah, it, it got extended for like two. So the next two upcoming school years. So I'm really playing European basketball like year by year. So I'm not really sure if like so my contract's a one year contract. So I'm not right. sure if maybe like if I really enjoy it, then yes, I'll play again. And unfortunately. I won't be able to receive the money from the scholarship, but I mean, it was obviously it. it I it was worth the application process and doing all that in case you know I do end up going to school, law school, a year from now. So, and you and you already have a place picked out and applied to, and you've you've, you've got that under under wraps too. Where where would you be headed if you weren't headed to Germany to play basketball? Yeah, so I decided to. A deferral down at the University of Illinois Law School. You've had you've had quite a life in the last four months, right? <laughs> with basketball, at the end of your college career, with more basketball, with law school. You know, I, I know you when we we tried to connect this weekend, you were you were taking some time off. How does this all feel? Does this feel real? Because it sounds like something out of some sort of like weekly CW television show. Yeah, no, it definitely feels surreal. And I I remember when, when I got, it was probably, it might have even been the Johnson, but one of the last awards, I remember my coach telling me, like, what are you going to do when you go a single day without getting another award? <laughs> so <laughs> so it definitely, it was definitely just, a, a, it really was fun just to see all of my hard work kind of shine through, through not only the basketball awards, but the awards that, you know, bring also in the academics and my community service because obviously going to a school like DePaul, basketball was usually like one of my main, obviously the things that I cared about, but but just there's so much more to my life as a student athlete. So I'm really glad that I was, that that was able to shine through, through all the awards that I got. Well, uh, Sydney, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Congratulations on, your academic career, your athletic career, and uh, the the uh, two really exciting options you have. Uh, I will probably pester you at some point just to see how you're doing in Germany. <laughs> we, we, we need as many friends in uh, playing professionally as we can find. So uh, uh, you, you haven't heard the last of us, but con- congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Gordon Mann and Sydney Cop for joining us on the show. Gordon asking a question he thought was unique, and Sydney has said she's been asked it a few times. You gotta love it when a well-blade plan just doesn't work out. But I want to thank Gordon. Great interview, great insight from Sydney Cop. Love to get the guys involved in that as well. And great to hear from a Justin's winner. When we come back, Ryan Scott takes up the mic. He'll talk to Kenna Gilmore from Hamilton. 
And Kenna's story is certainly a little bit more unique and ties in a little bit more to the Black Lives Matter protests as well. Great conversation coming up here on the Hoopsville June podcast presented by D3Hoops.com from the WBCA and ABC studios. More after this. We've got more schools than Division One, more fans than Division Two, and more upsets than March Madness. There's 800 programs with over 11,000 games leading to two national championships. And we've been covering it all for over a decade. From Eastern to Occidental, from Puget Sound to Piedmont, from Southwestern to the University of New England, and from Hope to Calvin. Nobody covers Division Three basketball like we do. We're D3Hoops.com at www.d3hoops.com. My name is Marcus Walker. I was All-State, won a state championship, a high school All-American, and played college and pro ball. I played because I love the game. I grind to be the best. I sweat because I put in work. I'm strong because I believe. When I want to bring it before game time, I come to the house that college basketball built, the CBE. No matter your skill, take it to another level. Elevate your game right here at the College Basketball Experience at Sprint Center. For the love of the game, but for those of us who are Division Three student-athletes, it's more than that, a lot more. Sure, the game is important. But as we work so hard to build both mind and body, it's more about team. That is why NCAA Division III teamed up with Special Olympics. And in giving the gift of sport to those for whom it seemed an impossible dream, we are working to make this a better world. Help us keep that dream alive. You can make a difference. Welcome back to the Hoopsville Podcast for the month of June. I'm your host, Dave McHugh from the WBCA NABC Studios. Of course, thanks to our Friends at D3Hoops.com, and of course, we're hearing from our friends as they're doing the interviews here as we continue our Justin's Winners segments. Ryan Scott got a chance to sit down with Kenna Gilmore to talk with the Hamilton Now graduate about winning the Justin's Award, but it's really what Kenna has done on campus and the things that he's been involved with, which gives him an incredible insight on what's really going on in these days and times around our, our country and around the world. I am uh, on the line here with uh, Kenna Gilmore from Hamilton, a recent graduate. Um, he is the 2020 Jostens Trophy winner, and so we thought we would catch up with him for Hoopsville this summer, um, talk a little bit about what that means. Uh, we want to start with basketball because uh, that's why we're here at the beginning of everything. Um, you had a little bit of a unique senior season in that you had uh, some really great runs your sophomore and junior year, but a lot of guys graduated, a lot of transition. Uh, your numbers continued to go up, but what was it like being a leader on this team that was very much younger than the ones you'd been on before? Yeah, it was a, it was a really big transition. I had a, a lot of great players and, and leaders before me. Um, and for my sophomore and junior year, we had a majority of the same uh, players who we got pretty experienced together. We played a lot of minutes together. In my senior year, uh, they had, all had graduated, so it was a new experience. Um, trying to help teach and work and interact with a lot of uh, underclassmen and people who are less experienced and try to find other ways to win instead of just relying on our experience and the chemistry we had, we had built in two or three seasons. Um, do you have any leadership lessons that come to mind, things you learned this year, uh, being, being one of the leaders, not just on the court, but uh, one of the older guys on the team? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I, I learned is uh, trying to just be patient and be a little bit less intense with people uh, kind of try to find different ways to communicate. Um, I'm someone who, when I was younger, I, I didn't mind getting yelled at or being um, having someone be pretty intense with me, but that doesn't work with everyone. So just trying to figure out what is most effective to kind of communicate a message or an image 
with uh, different guys. Sure. And and what has it meant to be part? Obviously, Hamilton's never gone away, but these last couple of years ha- have been a real resurgence to, to national prominence. What is it like uh, to be a part of that? Yeah, we, we took a lot of pride in it. Um, I remember my first year as a freshman, uh, a lot of teams kind of wrote us off and didn't really respect us and thought they could kind of uh, walk all over us a little bit. Um, but just, you know, having us continually get better and seeing teams respect us more and sometimes even seeing kind of was something we all took pride in. Um, and it was, we were really kind of happy to, to, to represent our school and our coach um, in that way. Yeah, and uh, now that you're, you guys are not leaving the cupboard bare, uh, it was a young team this year, but there's a ton of talent there. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. o- often overlooked in a, a league like the NESCAC where there are so many good teams year in and year out. What do you what do you think is the future the next few years of these guys you played with? Yeah, there's a, a lot of talented guys and um, a lot of a lot of players who have the opportunity to step up. Uh, Eric Anderson had a really good year last year, and I'm, I'm looking forward to him stepping up. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, Vince uh, Spencer and Big Mike uh, stepping into bigger leadership roles as a senior. Um, I think Nick is one of, if not the best defenders in the league, so I'm, I'm really excited to see him wreak havoc next year and I think that they can you know show a lot of teams that they're still really good and that um a lot of players who who I don't think the league has really seen we've I've seen in practice and I'm, I'm waiting for them to kind of uh, kind of take off next year awesome you you also have uh I don't know privilege unique experience anyway of being one of these seniors who had the end of your senior year um not canceled but changed dramatically you know you were telling me before mm-hmm. we started recording that you just got back today to pick up your stuff from campus. What has it been like to finish out the season and, and to graduate but not be able to be there? Yeah, it was weird to uh, have an It was nice to get closure. Um, and, you know, missing out on a, a couple of months of uh, my senior spring just kind of made me look back at my experience and made me miss and appreciate, you know, all the things I had. So it obviously wasn't exactly what I, I wanted, but um, I'm really happy that, you know, I, I was here for – three um, three quarter years and that I got to you know be a part of uh, the Hamilton community yeah sometimes it's a difficult transition to go from college to I guess what we say the real world right but uh, maybe it's mm-hmm. a, a smooth transition a little bit more to, to wean you off of that college life yeah yeah definitely um, the Jostens trophy is a huge honor um, it's awarded uh, for athletic and academic and community service Um what does it meant to you to be the recipient for this year? Um, I was I was honored, um, and I think it it represents more than you know me, but the support system I've had, whether it be um, my parents, um, Coach Stockwell, who's really helped me, you know, as a as an athlete, but also um, in just developing as a human being, um, the professors I've had, and just the, the opportunities I've been given to kind of impact other people as well. So I was really happy to have received it, and also just. It kind of humbled me and honored me that um, I was recognized in such a prestigious award. Yeah, I'm curious about how the process goes. I know they have, um, you know, applications and a big packet that has to get put together. Um, how much does the school do with that? How involved are you with the process as it goes along? Yeah, um, I for me, it was mostly through my uh, coach, Coach Stockwell, who he said that, you know, he believed that I could um, possibly win the award, I should be nominated, and we just spoke about you know, some of the things I've, I've done around campus, some of the, the communities I've um, tried to influence, some of the groups I've been a part of or created. And it was just, um, it was mostly, mostly through him and I guess the things he knew about me that, that, um, that helped me get the award. 
Sure. Uh, I know one of the big things um, you have, there's a long list of community service that goes along with uh, uh, this award for you. And it is with all the candidates. There are so many uh, players deserving of recognition across the country. But one of the things that stuck mm-hmm. out to me was uh, working with this Athletes of Color initiative at Hamilton. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as a freshman and as a, obviously a black man, um, it was a unique experience to uh, be both an athlete and be a person of color on campus. And there there has been communities created for uh, black people and people of color on campus, and I was involved with those. And I obviously was also involved in the athletic communities, but it's a unique experience to kind of be a part of both. Um, and there's certain obstacles and struggles that you have to adjust to um, that not many other uh, people you know don't have to that are unique to just being a black athlete. So me, um, another uh, basketball player who's a senior as well, Shao Loe, and a player, Kayla, who's on the women's team, um, we, we went to a seminar uh, that was actually at Amherst at the end of my junior year that was for groups of athletes of color um, for the entire NESCAC. And we saw how organized um, some of the other schools had their, their organizations, and we kind of were inspired by that. So we made the Athletes of Color Initiative uh, to try to bridge that gap and really help um, black and brown um, athletes um, that were coming into school and, uh, trying to help them with a lot of the hurdles and the adjustments that um, that we had to do with ourselves. Yeah, it's it's been an ongoing challenge and and something that a lot of the especially the academically elite universities and colleges are working hard uh, to diversify. It's something that hasn't <laughs> traditionally been true there. Um, what mm-hmm. what kind of progress have you seen? And obviously, you've been a part of it with this athletes of color initiative. Yeah, um, I think the the largest. Um, I guess marker of the progress has been I've seen so many more students uh, just gain an awareness that there are obviously uh, racial uh, obstacles and um, differences in people's experience based on things that they can't control. So I think the largest thing was just um, speaking about the elephant in the room and then specifically for our organization was um, trying to, you know, really um, let freshmen know, you know, early on, you know, there's going to be some obstacles and some difficulties that you may experience that, you have to be prepared for it. You have to, you know, uh, get ready for as best as you can. Sure. Um, another uh, community service on your list was working with the Higher Education Opportunity Program. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what your role was there? Yes. Yeah. So uh, HEOP, we just call it HEOP for the uh, Hamilton, um, is a program that helps a lot of students get prepared for college. Um, and for Hamilton, you know how rigorous a school it is. And there's people from uh, varying uh, backgrounds, um, different high schools all across the country. And the group is pro- uh, predominantly people of color. Um, and I worked um, last summer. I stayed at Hamilton for a majority of the summer working with the, the incoming students. Um, and these were students that were yet to be freshmen for the freshman year. Um, really trying to, you know, set a positive example, um, help them work through a lot of difficult summer courses and challenges, helping them prepare um, and really just trying to be a role model and, you know, kind of set an example of, you know, I think what I, at least what I think is the best way to behave and the best way to, to handle yourself as uh, a student and also as a black student in college. Sure. Um, are, are there any of your other community service uh, opportunities or anything else from campus that, that you want to highlight during this time? Um, another another uh, opportunity that I was really happy to be involved with um, was a program called Fun Fridays that uh, I in no way helped create, but our, our whole basketball team participated in, in it. Um, every other Friday, we'd go to the current elementary school and uh, go to the kids at recess and just interact with them, have fun with them, and 
kind of give back uh, to a community that, you know, has taken us in. Um, and I just, I, I thought that was a really cool experience working with all the little kids. Um, and I don't know, I, I made me miss recess a little bit. I didn't realize how much I, I enjoyed it until I'd gone back. Awesome. That's wonderful. Um, so now that you're transitioning out of Hamilton, what's next for you? I know you were a government major. Are you moving that direction? Mm-hmm. Grad school? What are your plans for the fall? Uh, I'm actually looking to play, to keep playing basketball next year and uh, play professionally overseas. Um, uh, obviously, with the virus and everything, it's, the process has been slowed down a little bit. But uh, Coach Stockwell has really helped me a lot um, and you know, talked to different agents. And I ended up signing with um, a company called Entersport. And um, I'm really looking forward to the, you know, the future and to see uh, what I can do and what's next. Uh, obviously, playing basketball is a big part of that. You want to keep going. But, but what is it that you expect mm-hmm. to get out of this experience um, continuing to play? Yeah, uh, in addition to basketball, obviously, just being able to see the world and uh, interact with people um, with very different cultures, uh, perspectives, languages, um, and just you know, kind of get to see something you know, very different than um, being in America, which I've, I've lived for the entirety of my life. Sure. And, and what are your, you don't have to have this decided yet. You just graduated from college, but when, when basketball's done, what do you see yourself doing? Do you have any idea yet? Yeah. Um, I can't specify in terms of a, an exact profession or job, but I, I really want to do something that, um, I can help, you know, make positive change and help affect change by either working in a community or just doing something to help marginalized groups, whether that be people of color, uh, women, uh, economically, uh, disadvantaged people, uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, I just want to, you know, make a change and leave the world like a better place than, than it was brought to me. Sure. And, and we would be remiss having you here, uh, this, this time of the year when we've had so many protests going on and, uh, the whole world is, is aware of the issues that have long, um, been sort of under the surface and on the surface in the U S what, what are your thoughts just on, um, everything that's happening in the country right now? Yeah, I feel like um, the murder of George Floyd kind of was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And um, everyone that's protesting, um, everyone that is showing their, their anger and disdain towards police brutality, uh, racism, and anti-blackness is, is uh, protesting and arguing against and fighting against um, not just one incident, but years and years of oppression since you know, some of our ancestors were, were brought to this uh, country um, unconsensually. So... I'm, I'm really happy to see so many people um, stand together and come in unity, um, not just people of color, but white people as well, who have you know, stepped up and are trying to make a positive change. And I'm, I'm looking forward to see um, some of the policy and systematic changes that come from this, um, as well as obviously some of the, the social changes and awareness, which we have already seen the impacts of um, in just uh, what it seems like a little over a week. Sure. And uh I, I'm obviously coming at this from a perspective of a you know late 30s white guy, but it, it feels to mm-hmm. me like there's uh, something different about this moment than maybe some of the previous ones we've had. Um, do you, it, just in the terms of you know people who may not have traditionally been supportive, you know, um, encouraging Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter protests and things like that. Do you feel the same way that this may be different than what we've seen in the past? That there may be more positive change out of this? Yes, I definitely do. I see. Um, usually when there's an atrocity in the black community, uh, obviously the people who are most affected are the loudest to speak out. But I'm seeing people from um, so many different backgrounds, so many different perspectives coming together over this one issue. So I'm, I too am pretty enthusiastic about um, the change that's going to come out of it. And it's, you know, it's incredible just to see so many people um, 
come together over an issue and have so much uh, energy and care and, and uh, positivity towards, you know, you know, creating a change. Yeah, and it's been sort of amazing seeing, you know, protests with tens of thousands of people in Europe and, and other places um, just sort mm-hmm. of resonating that this isn't just an American problem, even though it, it seems to be something that we're dealing with m- more than others. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that completely. Um, this is a Hoopsville interview, so we always finish by giving the guests the last word. Is there anything you want to share with anyone uh, tuning in across the country or from Hamilton? Yes. Um, I would just like to thank, um, now that I'm graduating, I've graduated and I'm back at the school one, one last time. I wanted to you know, thank the entire Hamilton community, um, Coach Stockwell, Coach Dobbs, um, everyone here for you know, trying to make my experience um, you know, the best it could be. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the Jostens on a great career, and we wish you the best of luck uh, finding a place to play this fall and, and continuing your career. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Hey, thanks again to Ryan Scott and uh, Kenna Gilmore there. Also want to thank again Gordon Mann and Sydney Cop for joining us. Nice to get the guys to do the segments there, get their insight, get their interview questions in because – Everybody's got a different style, and I loved hearing from them. Of course, all of our guests, um, Gilmore and Cop, joining us on the Blue Frame Technology Hoopsville Hotline. I want to thank the guys once again. Fascinating insight, especially Kenna Gilmore uh, uh, and his insight on the Black Lives Matter and the protests going on. Really appreciated his perspective, and, and Ryan did a bang-up job there as well. When we come back, we talk about the season that was and could have been with Landry Kalsmalski, the head coach of Swarthmore, and how his guys, despite it all, have certainly represented the jersey, the school, and themselves pretty well. You're listening to the Hoopsville June podcast, presented by D3Hoops.com for the WBCA NABC studios. More after this. It starts right when you hit the court. You imagine your finest moment. The game-winning shot that gets you to the dance. A monster dunk or no-look pass. And cutting down the net. Sports lets us dream of our own success and prepare us for our finest moments on and off the court. I learned a lot of valuable lessons playing college football. I never thought about the health benefits of exercise until I actually started to talk to coaches in college. It's not only just for performance, it's for life. My coaches instilled the importance of well-being, not only building up strength, mental health, getting enough sleep, eating properly, it's all what it is to be healthy. I decided that I want to go on a personal trainer and share my knowledge that I obtained in college about physical and mental well-being. We are the coaches of women's basketball. We are leaders and teachers, dreamers and winners. We are professionals who conduct ourselves ethically and with integrity. We place the education, safety, and well-being of the athletes we coach above all else and teach them the fundamental values they need to succeed in life. We are coaches united for the good of our game and those who play it. We are the WBCA. Now joining us on the Blue Frame Technology Hoopsville Hotline, it is a head coach of the number one ranked at the end of the season, Swarthmore Garnet. It is Landry Kalsmalski and coach... Appreciate you taking the time. We are three months removed from the season, and I can't believe it took us three months to talk to you. <laughs> well, lots been going on. I appreciate the uh, the invite. Yes, lots going on, and, and thank you again. I appreciate the time. 
Um, again, you guys, the expectations were high going into the season. You, you, you know, runner up to the national championship game in, in a great game against Oshkosh. I think a lot of people thought, geez, the way this team's reloaded, they, they could come back and, and do what Oshkosh did and maybe win the next time they get there. You guys are clicking on, on most of the cylinders, it seemed. You only had one loss on the entire season. We'll talk about that later. But you guys had to have been a bit disappointed when the rug basically got pulled out from under you and everybody else. Yeah, I think uh, I think a bit disappointed is a good way to describe it because we, while we were disappointed, and I would even say in the first you know ten minutes, kind of devastated, we we quickly uh, regrouped and you know started talking about what we need to do to to stay safe and keep our families and communities safe and how really we, we are kind of fortunate. Um, and so, so yeah, I think it was, it was sad to have that abrupt closure, but uh, ultimately we were, um, we were proud of, of the season and, and ready to move on to the next thing. I'm curious. Cause you know, this team wealth of talent, I, I said at some point, whether it was on the chat boards or on this show or somewhere else that, watching you guys play that you had reserves and thirds that that teams would be dying to have as starters so you have a plenty of talent but it was your seniors this year especially and Nate Schaefer uh, and Zach O'Dell that really seemed to be the heart and soul of this team can you talk about what those two seniors did for this program for starters and and maybe how tough it was to kind of leave the the job you know un- incomplete as it were even if they had done it all yeah, you know, I, I was probably two weeks after the everything got, was canceled. I I had this realization that based on our last game against Ithaca, I, I don't I don't know if those two guys would have allowed us to lose again. That, that's how mm-hmm. um, des- desperate they were to keep their careers going, and how proud they were to be you know a, a member of our program and just wanting to represent it the best way possible. Uh, because against Ithaca, they I mean Nate had twenty rebounds, and I think Zach had a double double. I mean they were just on another planet, um, which a lot of seniors are at that time because of the, the uh, urgency that you don't want it to end. So, um, yeah, they were, you know, heart and soul of our team this year, you know, guys that both played for four years and both just completely embraced their roles all along the way. And, uh, they took it very seriously that they wanted to leave uh, the program better than they found it. And, um, that, that showed in, in the way they came every day and the impact they had on their teammates. Yeah, their freshman year, obviously things were already going pretty well at 23-6 and six, um, on the season there. But again, you guys get to the national championship last year, and you're certainly clicking along at, at possibly getting there again. Granted, big game against Whitworth was coming up in that Sweet 16, and you had some uh, interesting battles with Brooklyn and then, as you mentioned, Ithaca in, in the last round. There was a great article in the Delco Times uh, talking about these two guys, Odell and Schaefer. Um, and I think the t- I think the title says it all. The article was spectacular, but it says title chance taken away. Swarthmore's Odell and Schaefer don't feel shortchanged at all. I I was blown away by the um, poise that those two guys had regarding everything. They, they no one would have faulted them, Landry, if they said, you know what, this stinks. Um, no one would have faulted them to say. You know, I really wish we got a chance at it. I really wish we could have kept on playing. But but they didn't. You know, they, they were very realistic and very uh, smart in what was going on. And, and they seem not bitter. You know, they don't have any bittersweet thoughts on this. Yeah, they have, they have really good and healthy perspective. And I, I think it, it did um, 
I think two things, Dave. First, we look back on the season and, you know, did we come and, you know, try to live up to our standard every day? And I think our, our players and coaches would say yes. And so, therefore, there's no real reason to lose sleep at night. And, and the second part of that is, you know, this did happen. And I know there were, you know, there were especially some D1 seniors, and um, you know, that, that I think people were really sad to not see playing the NCAA tournament. It felt unfair that they didn't get a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that we heard about, but I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, when, when it's all said and done, we're, we're all looking around going, wait, there, there are thousands of people dying right now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're, we're fortunate to be healthy and alive. We're fortunate that our families are safe. And, um, when you put it in that perspective, it, it is disappointing, but it's not anything more than that. Sure. Uh, great, great point of view on that for sure. The other dynamic about them before I move on to the rest of the team is last year Odell was kind of the guy that made the splash. And granted, you had you had other great players. You had a pretty good senior last year too, but Odell was the one inside who seemed to to get the attention. He certainly got the the honors, and he made his game really front and forward. This year, Schaefer seemed to find his game, and he, I know he was finding it late last year, but. This season, he really seemed to step to the forefront, and those two turned into an interesting yin and yang, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they they definitely had um, some of the same skills in some respects and in other ways, a different skill set. Um, you know, I, I think they both had similar developments um, over, over the four years. You know, Zach had a really amazing NCAA tournament as a junior and, and did get some of the honors. Uh, but, but Nate had a tremendous junior year as well. And then, yes, this year, uh, at times, Nate was, you know, being, you know, playing at a really high level. Um, and so was Zach, you know. So I think they just, you know what I'd say about them? I, I think the great thing about coaching in college is these guys, when they're, when their first years, you, you say, I hope they can get to be this good. And then by their senior mm-hmm. year, in the blink of an eye, they're actually better. Yeah. Uh, and, and you kind of can't believe it, and it's all to their credit. And um, it makes it really fulfilling to coach at this level and have guys like that who embrace the total four-year experience and get a lot out of it. They both shot about 55% or better. Nate Schaefer shot 58.7% on the season, uh, though he didn't take any threes. You couldn't get Odell to stop. He was one for 10 on the season. Uh, both good free-throw shooters, or, or Odell certainly improved in that category. Um, and both were solid rebounders. As a team, you were an incredibly good rebounding team, as you have been for a few years. They led the way, but it was the blocks that jumped out at me. 63 blocks on the season for Schaefer, 50 for Odell, and there were times when Schaefer would just unceremoniously block a ball that no one thought anybody had a chance at. That was a dynamic, I thought, on your defense, the rebounding and the blockability that really changed games. Yeah, and... and you know, we're not stupid as a coaching staff. I mean, our defense is not stellar. Uh, those guys bail us out a lot. And you talk about the blocks, but I, we think the altars are even more mm. uh, impactful um, that, you know, people just know there's two guys in there that are going to kind of mess with you every time you come in. And that was a definitely the top um, or most important part of why we were good defensively. Nate ended up finishing number one in program history in blocks, and Zach was two, and they were uh, flip flopped in rebounds. So uh, to say there's going to be a, uh, you know, we're going to miss them, or there's going to be a hole in the middle would be an understatement. That is true. Uh, I'll get to the holes in a minute. I wanted to touch on the rest of this squad because I think 
going into this season, we all knew how good Cam Wiley had been. We also knew and had seen how good Abbas Salah had been in the Final Four, especially. And we all had this confidence that, okay, you lose Wiley, but Salah is there. You've got some abilities there. It doesn't seem like you're going to miss a step. Uh, Did you realize how good Vinny D'Angelo was going to end up being? Because he ended up kind of taking the shine away a little bit from Salah, who, again, good player. I know he had some injuries, which allowed... Uh, Vinny to step in, but wow, what a freshman to have on this unit. Yeah, and, and you know, Boss, we think, is one of the best on-ball defenders in the country, yes. and he unfortunately missed uh, eight games early in the year. Um, ended up coming back really strong, but of course that was a uh, a setback for him personally and for our team. Um, and then Vinny, yeah, I mean, he's local. We got to see him in high school a lot. We thought he was pretty good. Um, I'd be lying if we thought he was this good. Um because he shot the ball a lot better than we thought. I think ended up being first in the conference in threes, and we thought he was a, a decent shooter coming out of high school. And it turns out he just didn't shoot a lot in high school. He, he drove it uh, because he was able to. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, to his credit, worked on it uh, leading up to getting ready for college and playing fuss and ended up shooting the ball really, really well. And then also, obviously, the most important thing, being a point guard, figuring out what we needed to be doing at all times, which which did take him a while. Um, but he got there and, yeah, had a really good year. Again, you talk about the losses in Odell and Schaefer. Certainly that'll be big. But, again, I said at the beginning, you guys have seconds and thirds on this team that teams would be dying to have in their starting lineups. Guys like Harkins and, and Ingram, Tucker, et cetera. I'm not going to be able to name all of them. Geez, George Visconti jumps out at, at, out of you, too. You still have a really good unit who've got players who you found, it seemed to me, made sure these guys got the experience they needed, too. Yeah, I, I wouldn't give myself too much credit. I mean, we just, <laughs> uh, you know, we just kind of play guys as we think they're ready. And, you know, if that means, you know, right away as freshmen or two months in or their sophomore year, we just, it's definitely not by plan. It's, it's just out of necessity of the moment. Um, but we do. I mean, we have a deep team and, you know, I mentioned there being a gaping hole with Zach and Nate gone. We have guys we think are going to be ready uh, to, to fill that, you know, a, a different role, but similar, um, you know, similar important um, part of the defense and the offense. So we're going to be different. Um, I think we'll play a little differently, but I th- we still feel pretty good about uh, our talent and our team chemistry. You had one blemish on the season. And to be honest, in my book, it's not a surprise. It was Johns Hopkins. You played him three times. Um, I, I think no one would have been surprised if you had, had gone two and one against them. I think more surprised three. No, just because the teams know each other so well. The coaching staffs know each other so darn well. Um, and, and there's a lot of inside stories on that, too. That championship game in a centennial comes down to the end. The irony being it's a Garnet Valley guy who hits the winner against you guys. But what what was it about that game or about that series with Hopkins that maybe helped you guys improve or or maybe got you ready for the tournament? Uh, well, I, I think you, you, you said it. I mean, Josh is a great coach. Uh, Connor Delaney is a first-team All-American. Um, and they have a great, they had great uh, other, he had great teammates and they had a great team. Um, you know, we were, we did beat them during the regular season, uh, both, you know, hard fought games. Mm -hmm. And then the conference final was just what a conference final should be. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, we learned a lot of lessons, especially down the stretch. I know I did as a coach, and we were going to be able to use those in the NCAA tournament, and we did in the first two rounds. Um, and, and they, you know, they they played really well, and Connor hit a shot at the end, and we lost. But, uh, you know, we, we've we've had some success though in the last few years coming off a loss in the conference final because I think it, it can refocus you for the NCAA tournament and, you know, getting ready for your ultimate goal. I saw you guys in the second regular season game against Hopkins down in Baltimore, and I found that game to be a fascinating X's and O's slash execution game. You guys came out in the second half on a tear, got Hopkins back on their heels. They did respond. But I also thought that game seemed to get you guys clicking back in because I felt going into that, you guys might have been not fully in gear for a few games. And maybe it's just my read. But what was it? Did you guys have struggles during the season of always being up for opponents, even if those opponents weren't always the best competition? I think your assessment is correct. I think it's because that game down at Hopkins was the first game we felt like uh, a bit of an underdog. Mm. So the mentality, we know when you're the number one seed and you're supposed to win a game, you, you know, you, you are, and we were really good about staying uh, away from being focused on the wrong things. But um, I do think that's, that is a reality. And then we go down there and everyone you know, I guess, you know, our guys are really into social media. Everyone's acting like we're the underdog. And so that was an opportunity to refocus a little bit because it was good to play as, as a quote unquote underdog. And we learned that a few years back when we went up to Middlebury, you know, they were two in the country and we were like 15 and our guys just felt, I mean, kind of disrespected, not Mm -hmm. by them or anything, but just like someone thinking they're better or people thinking they're better than us. And we played out of our minds. And I think it was similar to this year down at, at Johns Hopkins. Oh, by the way, I saw you at, uh, at for anybody who's not watching, uh, Landry knows I saw him, but I saw you guys at the last regular season game against McDaniel. Uh, yeah, that game was over within a couple of minutes. I think we were talking about spring plans five minutes into the game uh, on the broadcast because uh, that one was done and dusted. You guys were definitely clicking on all cylinders. I know we're three months removed now. You've probably had a chance to look back on, let's just say, the last two seasons. I know there's more to it than that. But the last two seasons, a chance to go all the way to the national championship game and and literally in a game against a really good Oshkosh squad um, and that magical run. And then this year, being the number one team in the country for a long chunk of the season, and and not to mention looking like you're going to get back to that, that chance at a title, how do you put the last two seasons together in a package and, and try and tell people about it? You know, I, I think we just, I know it sounds really boring, but we've just been trying to tweak it and improve it and enhance it every day. Uh, you know, both with how we X and O, with how we practice, with our culture. And I think, you know, as a coaching staff, we've just learned a lot and we try to put it into action and, and kind of feel like we're getting ourselves prepared for any challenge. Um, and then I think our players have really taken a lot of pride in uh, our program and our, uh, our program's culture. And, you know, it's just kind of, again, it's boring, but it's really just day by day, you know, practicing and uh, getting ready for the next challenge. And our guys have done a really good job staying focused in the present. And, and the culture at the school has changed. Um, there's been some interesting articles about how, you know, when football was good and then the you know, people didn't feel that that was proper and football was disbanded. And, and there was a long time when Swarthmore Athletics wasn't taken seriously. But you guys, 
playing well. The soccer programs are playing well. Big, big hire on the women's side to bring Canyon Signal Brown in to be head coach. Um, we've seen success in the spring now. There's a huge culture change at Swarthmore. And how is that on campus? Is it is it being received like a NESCAC school or this can be symbiotic with great af- great ac- academics as well? I think it's uh, it's been received really well. I mean, I, I think that um, everyone in our community values the role that athletics plays, um, both in terms of having people come out and having some compu- uh, communal joy, uh, but also just the, the lessons our student-athletes learn along the way. I mean, that's, that's always been respected. Um, I, I don't know that people are going to be clamoring for, uh, you know, school to shut down if someone goes to a national championship game or uh, <laughs> anything like that. I, I don't think it's quite at that level. Sure. Um, and, and I don't know enough about the NESCAC schools uh, to, com- to compare, but I, I think uh, the role of athletics is – uh, valued deeply at Swarthmore, and it's uh, it's been fun for across the board with how a lot of our teams have done. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Looking forward, uh, well, before we look forward, the last three months have also been surreal with this coronavirus, COVID-19, and now everything else going on in our world. The season just ends abruptly, and yes, a loss normally does that to everybody, but you didn't end on a loss. You were pre- preparing for another game. How has the last few months evolved for you and, and members of the team? You know, I, I think when we get together as a team, we, we just talk about um, the silver linings. And I think everyone out there, you know, the pandemic, you've, you've learned new things, whether it's brought the families closer together uh, or allowed, you know, uh, working professionals brain space to think about other passions. Um, I mean, even, you know, it's silly, but I mean, I, I'm not going to take my uh, our, our kids to get their haircuts anymore. I can do that. I've, I've proven that. <laughs> sure. I've proven that. And this, uh, so I mean, this is little, a lot of little things that have changed, I think, uh, for the better. And I don't say that lightly because a lot of people are struggling and a lot of people are unhealthy with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then also a lot of people are sacrificing, um, their, their, um, their time and some people, their lives for the protests for, uh, racial justice and equality. And I think that, um, I think, uh, in, in some respects, it's a really inspiring time because people are, are feeling, um, so motivated to make the changes we need. Uh, and I think I, my hope is that 20 years down the road, we look back at the pandemic and say, yeah, it was, it was inconvenient, but because of it, the frustrations from it or the time from it or the, uh, the economy or whatever, uh, we were able to make some good changes as a country. Uh, and that's that's my hope. And again, I don't say it lightly because there's a lot more people out there sacrificing more than I am. But I, I think all of the people doing it um, deserve uh, a lot of praise and because they're they're changing our country for the better. Sure. What's recruiting been like? Um, I, I know when the season comes to an end, you kind of focus on trying to solidify the the next year if if needed, because I know a lot of early admissions takes place. Uh, and then you're starting to look at the following year. I already know you had one recruit coming in from Arizona. They were kind enough to reach out to us uh, to learn more about Division Three. But how different has recruiting become for you? Well, it's definitely different. I mean, you know, the in-person evaluations are the bulk of how we decide uh, who we want. And, you know, we're still holding out hope that that's something we're going to be able to do. Uh, depending on who you talk to, it, it's going to be possible or completely unlikely. Uh, so we're just kind of, I think really for everyone, Dave, I mean, I think we all feel the same. This is just kind of a waiting game, you know, like what, what is our school, is our school going to be in session in the fall? Well, we'll know by the end of June. 
Um, are we going to be able to get out and recruit? Well, we'll know. It depends. I mean, it, who are we going to have coming back? Who may take a gap year if school's not in session? I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces right now that um, we're not going to have answers to for the next couple months. So recruiting-wise, though, I mean, we're doing our due diligence, and Shane Leffler, our assistant, is carrying the bulk of that right now. Uh, he's doing a great job of, you know, getting names and figuring out um, the people that would be good fits for us. And, and again, you know, you talk about silver linings. These Zoom calls and presentations for families, I, I don't know why the hell we weren't doing it before because mm. it's, it's, it's uh, I think it really creates a good um, message. And they, I think they are, uh, th- they definitely get a good feel for the school. And I think they get a, um, a little bit inspired that Swarthmore could be a good place. So, you know, that's something we'll definitely take away from this and continue to do because it's that important. Fascinating. I appreciate that thought uh, and that perspective. It's really interesting to hear. I agree. The Zoom certainly brings uh, the borders, uh, or I should say, removes the borders and makes everybody kind of close together to some degree. Um, what should we expect from the unit next year? Again, we we know Dallin Schaefer won't be back, and I've, I've spoken on what I know about your reserves. But from your perspective, um, what kind of team do you have coming back, and, and how good could it be or will it be? Um. Well, I, I, I don't know. I think that's TBD. I, I will say I think we've got um, really good guard play. i got a lot of guards that can play. Uh, so we'll have good numbers and depth there, good shooting there. Um, and then I think uh, we've got some big guys that are ready to step in and um, really blossom. Uh, that You know, it's hard to get time behind Zach and Nate, but I think we got some guys that are going to be ready to, uh, you know, uh, leave their mark in their own way. What be that, you know, stretching the court, which Zach and Nate didn't do, or, or you know, rebounding uh, differently? I don't know. But, I mean, we're, we're, definitely, uh, we're definitely feeling good about the team we're going to have, and we're going to have to figure out how to, as coaches, how to put them in the best position possible to have success. This might be a little bit of an odd question, but what do you expect, or not, because mainly you might not know, know all the pieces, but what do you expect from conference play next season? Yeah, that is a good question. I mean, uh, I would say our conference has been very competitive the last few years. Uh, we do play the double round robin. So when you're playing people the second time, everything goes out the window because yeah. you don't know what kind of changes they've made. And, um, you know, one of the coaches in the conference told me years ago that while that's tough during the season, it really prepares us for the NCAA tournament, our teams that go. And that's proven true in our case, where we felt very prepared once we enter the NCAA tournament. Um, so our conference is uh, is strong, and I think I do know that a few schools, especially, got some really good recruiting classes. So I think in the next two to three years, you're going to see uh, the Centennial really make a make a splash in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Obviously, I, I know the Centennial well. For those of you at home, it's in my neck of the woods, and I call some games in the conference, so I've gotten to know it well, and and I've I've really enjoyed the last few years, to say the least. Uh, I really appreciate the time. Uh, I know it's bittersweet to not finish the way you guys had hoped or anybody had hoped, but I, you guys certainly still finished on a high. Really impressive uh, couple-year run here. Looking forward to seeing what you guys do moving forward from here. And again, my tip of the hat to the team, especially your seniors, Odell and Schaefer. We always, though, leave it to the coach with the final word. Any final thoughts you want to share with those tuned in? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Um, you know, something you just said made me think, I, I think just to all the coaches out there, a realization I had because of this kind of unprecedented ending to a, a season was I think sometimes we uh, set this goal of like, we want to win a national championship. And that kind of 
is on our mind the whole year, and it, it causes us to react certain ways when things go well or things don't go well. And what I learned from this experience was, you know, we were really satisfied with the season because when we look back, we were like, well, we were great every day. We had fun every day. We were loose every day. We were connected every day. And um, that, at the end of the day, was what had us feeling really good about the season. So I think that kind of keeping the, the focus in the present and, you know, trying to fulfill uh, your team goals of who they want to be or who the, it, the team wants to be, uh, I think it's the most important thing. And I think it's what we should focus, start focusing more on as coaches. I think it's healthier and uh, leads to more success. Fascinating. Great point of view. I appreciate that. Makes me think about a few things I know um, that happen at the end of seasons or don't happen, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, good luck the rest of the summer um, with the family. I know everybody's going stir-crazy, <laughs> but enjoy it, and we'll look forward to hopefully when basketball comes back and everything else comes back, looking forward to talking to you and seeing the Garnet back on the floor again. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. He's Landry Kalsmoski, the head coach of Swarthmore here on the Blue Frame Technology Hoopsville Hotline. Once again, thanks to Landry Kalsmonski of Swarthmore for joining us on the show. Uh, I, I feel so much for that team and the 15 other men's teams and 16 other women's teams who didn't get a chance to complete the, the fight for a championship. But I really feel for Swarthmore because the expectations were so high and they had lived up to those expectations and they were going into the meat of really proving themselves in the postseason. Listen, you might remember I got nervous about Swarthmore at one point. We talked about it there with Landry. Uh, about that one part of their season in the Centennial Conference where things just didn't seem as like they were clicking. But despite the loss to Hopkins in the Centennial Conference championship game, which I don't think is that big a surprise, that team was clicking. And the games they had coming up, and there are other games that we saw coming up, like Randolph-Macon and Yeshiva, and some of these others, oh, what could have been for another weekend of, of tournament play and then to get you know, to Fort Wayne for the Elite Eight and Final Four, and then to get to Atlanta for the championship. What could have been? What could have been an amazing championship? But again, hats off to Swarthmore, and especially their captains and seniors, for how they have conducted themselves post. No woe is me. No cry me's a river. And none of that. It's been very much, hey, we still got an incredible experience. And and we aren't hanging our hat, heads. Those gentlemen and, and everybody else who've been in those situations, hats off to them, to say the least. When we come back, we wrap it up, talk a little bit about future shows. We've got to talk a little bit about that. And we give a hat tip to Chris Wensler, the former SID at John Carroll. Back with more on the Hoopsville June podcast after this. Football has taught me a lot throughout my life. It's definitely had a huge imprint on who I am as a person competing at a Division III level created that opportunity for me to go to college. Not only was I the first one in my family to graduate college, but I was really the first one to even go. Being the first one, I'm breaking that cycle, and, and now that I've graduated, I'm not sure what's the next step, but I know I have a lot of doors open. And a lot of those are open because I played football and ran track here at Otterbein. This is why we love sports. It's in the way they play, free from the pressures and all the money talk. Playing for simply the love of the game, where everyone has a shot at their definition of success on and off the field. This is what we love about sports and what we can still love about college sports. We've got
got more schools than Division One, more fans than Division Two, and more upsets than March Madness. There's 800 programs with over 11,000 games leading to two national championships. And we've been covering it all for over a decade. From Eastern to Occidental, from Puget Sound to Piedmont, from Southwestern to the University of New England, and from Hope to Calvin. Nobody covers Division Three basketball like we do. We're D3Hoops.com at www.d3hoops.com. This copyrighted broadcast of Hoopsville is a property of DMAC Productions and David McHugh and is intended solely for the private, personal use of our audience. Any other broadcast, rebroadcast, or other use of the descriptions and accounts of this show without the express written consent of Hoopsville and DMAC Productions is strictly prohibited. Welcome back to the June podcast here on Hoopsville. I'm your host, Dave McHugh. As we wrap things up here, a couple of notes, uh, programming notes for you. I will actually be a little bit busy come July, at least unless coronavirus really derails things here or anything else for that matter. So I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get a July podcast together or not. We will bring some gear with us on a on a business trip, believe it or not, I'm taking um, coming up here in the middle of the month just in case we maybe can put something together in the time we have, but I'm not sure if the time will be available, and I'm not sure if we will be able to pull it off. So there is a chance that come beginning of August might be the next time we can get a podcast out the door for everybody. Of course, a lot is going to change between now and then, and so we do encourage you to follow us on Twitter at D3Hoopsville and the hashtag Hoopsville. And, of course, follow D3Hoops that way as well. They're at D3Hoops. And the universal hashtag for Division Three basketball is at D3Hoops. The universal one for Division Three news is at NCAA D3. We will do our best to update you on anything we learn there. Um, we'll try and do our best to do that on Facebook as well. So just keep an eye out for all of that. Um, as we move forward, uh, we will do our best to get a July podcast out the door, but most likely we'll get what I'll call a midsummer podcast out the door come the beginning of August or so, depending on what else is going on. Um, as much as I've been without work since March 11th, when everything came unglued, I at least have some work on the horizon as long as coronavirus doesn't unglue that as well. We are. I'm also working on a project. I mentioned Larry Anderson at the beginning of the show being in the running for the Amherst job. Larry Anderson and I have been talking, and we are coming up with a project. I don't want to talk too much about it right now because we're still kind of hashing it out and putting it together and, and figuring out how we want to do it exactly. Um, it may not – I don't even know what a name is of it's going to be, but keep an eye out and an ear out for that. We will do something in the near future, an announcement – and put something basically be a series together. Um, it won't necessarily be out every week or every every month. It'll be out when we feel it's necessary. But we we have a series in mind that I want to do with him that I think could could be really beneficial. And so look for that uh, information coming. I just wanted to mention it because the conversations I've had with Larry, who I consider a friend, um, have been amazing and eye opening to some degree but also um, informational, informative, maybe a better word. And, and time flies when Larry and I talk. Anyway, um, looking forward to, to teaming up with him on this project 
and we'll let you know more about it when it becomes a little bit more concrete. And of course, again, follow us on Facebook and Twitter for maybe more of that announcement. I want to thank our guests who came on the show. Most important, not most importantly, but all of them were great. Matt Airy from Aurora, of course, Sydney Cop and Kenna Gilmore from uh, DePaul and Hamilton, respectively. And of course, thanks to Gordon Mann and Ryan Scott for doing those great interviews with those two student athletes, of course, now graduates. And of course, Landry Kalsmalski at Swarthmore. And I want to thank all of them for their time. I also want to thank all the sports information directors who helped us with those segments and other work that we needed to put together. I really appreciate it. And um, we uh, look forward to talking to more sports information directors down the road. I mentioned that because I, as the beginning of the show, I mentioned uh, today's show, uh, this month's show is dedicated in the honor and, and unfortunately the memory of Chris Wensler of John Carroll, sports information director of 30 years plus. Uh, you might remember back in November, we talked about Chris, who had been at that point fighting cancer for nearly two years. And unfortunately, it had come roaring back on him, multiple myeloma. He had gone into, I believe, the Cleveland Clinic at the time. Since then, on his Facebook page, he had been posting updates, some of them not so great, but I had the confidence that he was going to get this thing beat. Unfortunately, um, that turned for the worse um, just recently. And his last post on Facebook was to say that he was now considered a terminal case um, and that he was going into hospice. And amazingly, maybe not the right word, devastatingly is, is better Within hours of that post, Chris had died. Um, Chris, I, I, I could repeat what I said in the podcast or the show back in November, which I, when I went back to listen to that, realized had some of the worst audio that we had had all year, and I really apologize for that. But Chris was amazing. I got to know him well in covering Division Three sports, not just basketball, but sports in general. He had story ideas for me. He had guest ideas for me. He'd, he'd chat. He'd let me bend his ear when I needed to. Um, going to broadcast or just go see games at John Carroll. I never need the red carpet, and, and Chris knew that, but certainly he made sure I was taken care of or that information I needed was available or if, and, and just the time to take to recognize that I was there and that I was doing whatever I was doing and that he wanted to make sure it was done at the best of my ability meant a lot. And we got Brendan Gulick out of the deal, to be honest. Brendan, a John Carroll graduate. Um, I got to know when he was at John Carroll as a broadcaster, he met me at Transylvania for the first weekend of an NCAA tournament to understand how we broadcast games ourselves. He went to Mount Union, I believe, the next weekend and broadcast some women's tournament games for us. Brendan and I have been uh, good friends ever since. And last year got to team up for the first time calling the men's uh, champion or the semifinals and all-star game in Fort Wayne. And then this year, you might remember Brendan and I got teamed up to do the selection shows, which was absolutely awesome. That's all because in most part, Chris Wensler, who is, was a good friend of Brendan's. Um, the SID World Division Three in its entirety is a better place because of Chris Wensler. And my thoughts are with his family, with his friends, with the entire sports information um, world, but especially those like Lenny Wright and Kevin Ruppel, who's now retired, who, Ruppel, I said Ruppel, sorry, um, 
who are best friends with with Wensler, uh, and to all of Wensler's warriors and those who contributed to the family and and gave back. Hats off. Um, what a wonderful man. And it's it's a shame that cancer sucks this bad because it takes the good ones. And for me, as you might remember what I said in November, it's now taken two people that I have thought um, highly of while not necessarily taking family members. And uh, it's unfair. And so this show is dedicated to Wensler. And as we sign off, instead of our usual music, we've got the John Carroll fight song in honor of Wensler, who was a graduate of the school. Our best again to his family and kids and everybody else. Thanks for tuning into this show, and we will see you uh, next show.